Okay, Jay's going to uh, call back in. Uh, I'm going to go over the review again. First, we're going to review the Cup Series Open and All-Star Race at Bristol, along with our preview of the Arkham Menard Series at Iowa. We'll preview the Gander Outdoor Truck Series at 9 o'clock, along with the Xfinity Race at 9.20, and then we'll preview the Cup Series in Texas at uh, 9.40. 10 o'clock is NASCAR Hot Topic Sound Off, and joining me now is Jay Huseman, our co-host. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you, Sharon. What a night oh. to have uh, right after the All-Star race. How exciting is that? <laughs> no kidding. Uh, we did a little bit of a preview on Monday night, or normally our review show, and tonight we're going to do a little bit of review on our preview show. So <laughs> that happens when we have these uh, midweek events. So let's go ahead and get into it, Jay. Uh, we had the Open to start out with. Uh, Matt Benedetto was the winner of the Open at age 28, uh, and he was driving the number 21 Menards FBP Ford for Wood Brothers Racing with crew chief Greg Irwin. He won uh, the NASCAR All-Star Open. It was his first victory in the special non-points-paying event. And Stuart Haas Racing's Eric Almarola won the first stage. Hendrick Motorsports' William Byron won the second stage. And Stuart Haas Racing's Clint Boyer won the NASCAR fan vote. And all of those drivers qualified then to move on to the All-Star event. Well, none of them can can truly be considered a surprise, I don't think. Uh, There's still a couple others that were running good, and we know uh, could have certainly transferred their way in. But with how those teams have been running uh, so far this year leading up to the All-Star race, kind of expected them to be in the ones to be in the hunt to pick up those stage wins or win the race. And Clint Boyer, although he was the fan vote winner, was finished second to Matt Benedetto, so was running right there at the end as well. Absolutely. Uh, right behind Clint Boyer was Austin Dillon in the number three for RCR. Then you had Chris Busher in the number 17 for uh, Rush Benway Racing. And rounding out the top five, two Dillons in the top five. Ty Dillon in the number 13 finished in fifth place. Rounding out the top ten are Ricky Stenhouse Jr., Michael McDowell, John Hunter Nemechek, the highest finishing rookie, then Corey LaJoy and Tyler Reddick, another rookie in the top ten. But right behind him was Christopher Bell, one of the other rookies. Well, and right there's a whole list of names, like I mentioned, that thought really did have a possible chance of racing their way in. We know Ricky Stenhouse is really good at that track. Ty Dillon there in fifth. Uh, Michael McDowell, one that you don't see running up front a whole lot, 
with maybe the exception of the super speedways, but I think Bristol is one of his better tracks. And then Tyler Reddick, and Tyler Reddick really did look like throughout the race had one of the cars to beat. I know he had some issues with his uh, his wheel there that he had to keep pitting for, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happened early in the event. And uh, uh, it, it took him a little while, but he still was able to pull off a top-ten finish, which was a big accomplishment with everything that he was dealing with. There were four caution flags for 18 laps, Three lead changes among just four drivers, including Michael McDowell, Eric Almarola, William Byron, and Matt DiBenedetto. So a uh, pretty interesting event uh, in the open. Uh, and then after that was the All-Star Race. The winner of the All-Star Race was Chase Elliott at age 24 in the number nine Unifirst Chevrolet for Hendrick Motorsports, and his crew chief was Alan Gustafson. It was his first victory in the special non-points-paying NASCAR Cup Series event. Chase Elliott in 2020 and his father, Bill Elliott, in 1986 became the second father-son duo to win the NASCAR All-Star Races, joining the Earnhardts, Dale and Dale Jr. Uh, in 1987 and 1993, and Dale Jr. won in 2000. So only the second time in history that there's a father and son duo winning an all-star event. Uh, Hendrick Motorsports leads the series in NASCAR all-star race wins with 10 victories. Jimmy Johnson has four in 2003. 2006, 2012, and 2013. Jeff Gordon has three in 95, 97, and 2001. And Terry Labonte won two in 99 and 1988. Chase Elliott is the last and latest driver to win uh, this season. So uh, big, big event in the all-star race for that Hendrick Motorsports organization. Well, and here, this one comes kind of as a surprise, but not a surprise. To see his name up there as a, as part of the father-son duo with Bill Elliott winning as well as himself, I think was bound to happen eventually. Um, as he's grown, we've seen that, and it doesn't matter the track. He has improved on all tracks. However, Bristol not necessarily being his best track and I know when they interviewed him prior to the race, a uh, month or so ago when they were at Bristol Motor Speedway, he was saying how his car was set up for longer runs. He had a better car and longer run. So this short sprint racing was kind of opposite of what they had in the car. Said they put a new setup mm-hmm. in and we're going to go after it. And obviously they got it right. They certainly did. That race had a margin of victory of just .418 seconds with uh, Kyle Busch. Uh, last year's champion, uh, really close behind uh, Chase Elliott. So he really had to work for that victory. There were five caution flags for 13 laps and six lead changes among four drivers, including Martin Truex Jr., Alex Bowman, Ryan Blaney, Kevin Harvick, Chase Elliott, and uh, those were the only drivers to lead in this all-star event. There again, if you watch the race, hopefully you did. If not, see if you can find it on replay because it is worth watching. Several drivers throughout the event really looked like they they had the strongest car. Uh, until the end there, Chase really did come on and, and finished it off. But 
We saw Ryan Blaney look really strong. Kevin Harvick, Kyle Busch there at the end, uh, appeared to be running down uh, Chase Elliott, and that is a good track for Kyle Busch. That's why I had him picked. So, unfortunately, I came up a little short. But <laughs> So, there were several that really did uh, have a shot at it uh, coming to the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rounding out the top five were Kevin Harvick in third. Brad Keselowski finished fourth, and Denny Hamlin rounds out the top five. The next five drivers were Ryan Blaney, Joey Logano, Alex Bowman, Eric Almarola, who transferred from the Open, and uh, Martin Truex Jr., who actually was the pole sitter and had to start from the back. So it's kind of amazing that he ended up with a top ten finish. Well, in the setup, the way it was, again, this, the stage breaks, and I, I, we'll talk about this again on Hot Topics, I'm sure, as we do, or I got anyway, several Hot Topics coming out of the All-Star race um, to see that. But big shout-out to Eric Almirola. Like you said, he transferred out of the open. You know, some people say that gives you a little bit of an advantage. Um, I don't know if so much as the track is Bristol as far as getting the track, but just to, to work his way back into the top ten and be a contender. Absolutely, and the other uh, transfer drivers, William Byron finished in 12th place, Matt DiBenedetto finished 13th, and Cliff Boyer uh, finished in 15th. So all of those drivers finished within the top 15. The other one, you got to give a shout-out. I know he finished 16th there, but Cole Custer got, got his first career win there week prior at Kentucky, the only rookie in the field here for the uh, Cup Series. Yes, yes, that's true. He qualified by winning uh, this past weekend, so uh, uh, he got in just in time. So that all worked out uh, really well for Cole Custer. Uh, It was a big accomplishment as a rookie to be in that all-star event. Okay, anything else you wanted to add there, Jay? No, I think the rest of it all is going to kind of pertain to uh, to hot topics. Uh, obviously, we went down the results, some great racing. Uh, it will cover how the event went there with Bristol and some of the things that they did with with it um, that, as we look to the future. But we'll hit that in hot topics. Okay. All right. So uh, you're right. We've got a lot to talk about in our hot topic sound off segments. So uh, we'll kind of ask folks to stay tuned for that. Coming up next, I do want to get into the Shore Lunch 150 for the Arkham Menard Series. Uh, They are actually going to be racing at Iowa Speedway in Newton, Iowa this weekend, Saturday, July the 18th. Uh, The race starts at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time and will be televised for those folks who have MAV-TV. They'll be able to watch it there. If you don't have MAV-TV, hopefully you have NBC Gold's Track Pass subscription because you'll be able to see the live streaming of the event there uh, if you are a member. Again, that's at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, if if not, you can go to arcaracing.com and see the uh, live timing and scoring there. Uh, This is a uh, D-shaped 8.75-mile paved oval uh, for these guys and gals, and uh, there's going to be a practice session that actually takes place 
from 1 to 2 p.m. That's central time. Uh, so I guess that would be 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern. And, uh, uh, again, uh, this is going to be a really fun event to watch. There's a lot for people to watch for at Iowa. Jay? It most Jay? certainly is. And taking a quick <laughs> peek there at the entry list already, 22 cars on the entry list. So we picked up a couple as far as that. I'm just happy to see. I know that Northern states, some of them aren't uh, as open. I know it's gonna, I think it's going to be with no fans. However, they are able to at least race there. So uh, happy that ARCA is getting their races in as well. Okay. Now, the track sits about 30 minutes east of Des Moines, Iowa, and it's been a staple of both the ARCA Menard Series as well as the ARCA East and ARCA West Series. It opened in 2006, and they posted 31 events between the three ARCA series. Now, past winners at the fastest short track on the planet includes uh, some of the NASCAR drivers that are seeing success now, and that includes Joey Logano, Alex Bowman, Chase Elliott, Cole Custer, and Chase Briscoe. So uh, the Arkham Menard Series is certainly a feeder series into NASCAR's top three. It most certainly is, and I know this one has come up in hot topics in years past, but i got to say I think Iowa is on the list of tracks that do not currently have a cup race that has to be looked at um, when it comes to that. Because, again, you saw some of the drivers that Sharon listed that have moved on and we've seen some great racing. I've been there for the Xfinity as well as the trucks and the Arctic Series, and it is a great facility. It really is. So close to the expressway, easy to get in, easy to get out, and uh, uh, it's really a great uh, bucket list facility for everybody uh, to have on their list. Now, Michael Self, and I remember this, climbed the front stretch fence, and celebration in 2013 when he became the first uh, West driver to win the annual NASCAR combination event. Uh, Both Sam Mayer and Chandler Smith claimed wins there just last year. This year's Shore Lunch 150 is part of a weekend that also is featuring the NTT IndyCar Series, Jay, and they'll have back-to-back nights of racing on Friday and Saturday, uh, Arca's race, of course, this Saturday afternoon, and is also the third round of the Sioux Chiefs showdown that's going to air on MAP TV. So uh, this is uh, the third third bout for that Sioux Chiefs showdown of the short tracks. I'm super excited about that. We talk about that every chance we get when it comes up, the, the programs that they do within the main series like this that that we get to see and drivers have a chance to run after a championship. And most notably, I say Chandler Smith, because he just turned 18 and can run on some of the bigger tracks. He's always been limited in Mm -hmm. starts to the shorter tracks, but made the most of it because he's won that uh, short track showdown before. Okay. Now, uh, some other drivers you've got to keep your eye on. It's going to be hard to pick a favorite for this race because self uh, right now has a 22-point cushion on the strength of five top fives and top tens in all six starts this year. Uh, he comes from Park City, Utah, and he has plenty of success of Iowa, uh, including the 2013 win that we were talking about. 
Uh, he also has the highest finishing West driver in the 2012 uh, event. He was ninth overall. He has two top fives and three ARCA starts, including a third place last year. His teammate, Chandler Smith, you just mentioned him, he's looking to rebound from a disappointing 22nd in the Gander RV and Outdoor Truck Series race for Kyle Busch Motorsports at Kentucky Speedway. Now, the 18-year-old returns to the Arkham Menard Series, where he's won both Sioux Chief Showdown races so far this season and has victories in five of his last eight series starts, including 140 of 50, 50, 150 laps led at Iowa in his Iowa win last July. Smith also finished second to Sheldon Creed in Iowa in 2018. So those are certainly a couple of the Venturini drivers to keep your eye out on. Well, then you got to look at Ty Gibbs. Uh, he was fifth in mm-hmm. the Arkham Nard Series race on July 19th and a second a week later in the East-West Combination event. He's coming off a dominating performance at Kentucky Speedway where he picked up his second win in his last three starts. And then there's Mayer, the defending East champion, uh, Sam Mayer led 142 of 150 laps in route to a win at the Iowa in the final East-West race there under the NASCAR banner and finished fourth at Kentucky after starting for 14th. And we also got Brett Holmes. He's continuing to inch closer to his first series win with a runner-up finish at Kentucky and has top 10 finishes in all three starts at Iowa. One more to look at, Jesse Love. He's put together a string of two wins and two runner-up finishes to take control of the Arkham Menard Series West standings, and he'll look to become the first Bill McAnally driver to win at Iowa since Brandon McReynolds and Todd Gillen combined to sweep four straight of the East-West races from 2015 to 2017. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and and as we mentioned, uh, Chandler Smith is the guy who's won uh, the first two uh, events in that Sioux Chief showdown. Now, looking at the crew chief handout, the starting field is limited to 36. You said there were how many, Jay? Uh, 22 on the entry list. Okay, so all that field is going to be set by the 2020 Sioux Chief showdown owner's points, and uh, so we don't have to worry about anything beyond that. Uh, the event will be run under the 2020 Arkham and Art Series rules, procedures, regulations, and specifications. Now, for pit stops, there's no adding or moving tires to or from the pit box once the race has started. A minimum of four crew members may service the cars, but no tires and fuel may be added outside of the break. Now, the race is 100 laps or 150 miles, and it's to be run in three segments. So the race will have the first break at or near the conclusion of lap 50. The second break will be at or near the conclusion of lap 100. And again, at the conclusion uh, of the breaks, vehicles will line up in the order that they were running at the beginning of the break. So the maximum tire allotment available uh, for this event is, uh, as per the ARCA rulebook, a maximum of a maximum number of tires allowed in the pit box for use in the race is at eight. So there you have uh, the information for this particular event. 
you were mentioning the entry list. There's several drivers that we have not yet mentioned yet, Jay. Well, we'll start at the top uh, with uh, numerically the number one, Max McLaughlin, uh, Shihatori Toyota, and then Haley Deegan. Uh, talk about her when we talk about points, uh, both in the short track showdown as well as the overall Arkham Menards. She's driving for David Gillen in the Monster Ford. Then you've got Tim Richmond in the 06, racing with Rain Peterson uh, racing, and Michael Peterson is going to be his crew chief in that car. The number seven is driven by Eric Caudell, uh, his own race team, and he's driving a Ford, and his pit crew member, his pit crew um, chief crew chief is what I'm trying to say, is Jeremy Pitt Petty. Then you got a trio of Hillenberg machines with Mike Basham in the number 10, Dick Delaney in the 11, and Rick Clifton in the number 12. Two of them Toyotas, one being a Chevrolet, which, going by the notes, obviously this driver's a talent because he's got himself listed as the crew chief with Dick Delaney, but Kevin Cram will be the crew chief for Mike Basham and Mike Schrauf for Rick Clifton. Okay, next up we've got... uh, uh, Bill Venturini, uh, driver, Drew Dollar in the number 15 Toyota with Shannon Rush as his crew chief. Uh, Gio Scalzi for Bill McAnally Racing uh, will be in the number 16 this weekend with John Camilleri uh, as his crew chief. And then in the 17 is Taylor Gray for David Gilliland and DGR Crossley in a Ford with Blake Brainbridge as his crew chief. And we got a list here of several we already talked about, so I'm going to scroll down to the number 22 for Chad Bryant Racing. It'll be Cody Swanson in the machine with legendary crew chief Paul Andrews on the box. And we mentioned Brett Holmes, so I'll scoot down to the 32, Howie DeSivani, the third in the Kevin Sawinski machine with Jamie Jones on the crew box. Next up is uh, the number 46 with Thad Moffat, driving for Bola Mastis, part of the DGR Crosley Group. He'll be in a Ford with Derek Smith as his crew chief. And Brad Smith, his own team, in a Chevrolet, uh, driving the number 48 with Jeff Smith at the top of the pit box. And the final two entrants we got here, the Bill Kimmel-owned machine, number 69 with Kimmel crew chief, and will be driven again once again by Scott Melton. And then one last Bill McAnally Toyota with Roger Bracken as the crew chief, and that'll be Gracie Trotter. And I know there's an article up on the Arkham Menards homepage about her and the season she's been building on. Yes, uh, definitely uh, make sure you take a look at that and check that out. Um, Let's go ahead and get into, we've got a couple minutes here, and we're going into the Truck Series race. Uh, Let's give our Truck Series picks. All right, I believe we have all the truck picks in Actually, nope, I take that back We're still waiting on Sam, he's got the last pick Uh, We'll start out here Unfortunately, I had to kick us off I've had two weeks in a row where I was last out of our picks But going to turn that around this weekend at Texas With Grant Enfinger, hopefully Um, Owen went with Brett Moffitt then Justin Haley, which I had to give James a thumbs up. I hadn't even gone through the whole entry list, but Justin Haley in a truck, the number 24 GMS truck, I think that could be a steal of a pick. 
However, Andy was right behind him with Kyle Busch. So that one could have gotten all three of us there to start. Uh, Mike went with Stuart Friesen. Sharon took Ben Rhodes. And like I said, Sam actually coming off the win last week with Sheldon Creed uh, is last, and I haven't gotten or heard from his yet. All right. And the overall points right now for the truck series. All right. Take a peek at that. And these did really over the past couple of weeks. I'm wearing my eraser out here. Uh, <laughs> we got a tie atop the points with Andy and Owen at 24. Then Sam and Sharon are tied at 22. James is at 17. And we have a, th- a tie at the bottom as well. Unfortunately, I went from the top to the bottom. Mike and I both have 14. So, Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Yep, that one only a 10-point gap here amongst us all. Wow. Okay, well, we've got a lot to look forward to with this truck series. Uh, They'll be racing the Vancor 350 at Texas Motor Speedway this Saturday, July the 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, Fox Sports 1 carries the coverage starting at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and radio coverage is on MRN and Sirius XM NASCAR Radio. They will be racing a distance of 250.5 miles over 167 laps. Stage 1 ends on lap 40, stage 2 at lap 80, and the final stage ends on the last lap, lap 167. Last year's race winner was Kyle Busch. When we look at the playoff picture for the truck series, it's still a little hazy with so many races left. There are only two drivers currently locked into the NASCAR Gander and RV and Outdoor Truck Series heading into Saturday night's Vancor 250 as Thor Sports Racing's Grand Enfinger and now GMS Racing's Sheldon Creed have picked up victories. With 15 races in uh, the book so far, former series champion Johnny Sauter is in the playoff hot seat, currently in that 10th spot in the driver's standing, just 14 points ahead of Sunoco rookie Derek Krause, who's 11th in the first spot outside the playoff cutoff. What might be even more surprising is Sauter's Thor Sport Racing teammate and three-time series champion Matt Crafton is outside that postseason cut line, currently 12th in the standings, 19 points behind Sauter. When we look ahead to Texas, the Thor Sport Racing teammates of Sauter and Crafton are the only Truck Series championship contenders entered into this weekend with a previous win at the 1.5-mile track. Sauter has made 23 starts at Texas, posting four poles and five wins. Uh, he swept the races there in 2012 and also had a win in each of 16, the years 16, 17, and 18. Both are most amongst active drivers. He's also amassed 11 top fives and 17 top tens and finished third in the March Gander Trucks race there last season. Crafton has made the series most 38 starts at Texas. He's posted three poles, two wins in 14 and 15, and a series leading 16 top fives and 27 top tens. He finished fifth in the event last season. Snoko rookie candidate and McNally Hilgerman's racing's Derek Krause is sitting in 11th. Again, that first spot outside the playoffs, 14 points back from Sauter in 10th and five up on Crafton in 12th. 
Uh, Kraus Kraus is having a strong start to his rookie campaign in seven races. He has gathered one top five and four top tens. This weekend will mark his series track debut at Texas. A couple others want to hit in between there. I was going to go over the chart just a little bit here. Okay. Uh, Again, Grant Enfriger, Sheldon Creed locked up in victories. Austin Hill, your top points per uh, getter at 293, but is sitting third. Uh, then you have Ben Rhodes, rookie Christian Eckes, and Zane Smith. And then Todd Gillen, Brett Moffitt, and Tyler Ankrum that are in. The other one that's real close right now on the outside looking in, between 12th and Stuart Friesen in 14th, is another rookie, Tanner Gray at 172. And then Raphael Lassard, also another rookie, in 15th at 143. Okay. Now uh, we're going to take a look. Creek becomes the 17th different first-time winner in the Gander Trucks over the last five seasons. In a rain-shortened NASCAR Truck Series event at Kentucky Speedway, GMS Racing's Sheldon Creed grabbed his first checkered flag of his career, becoming the 17th different driver in the last five seasons to get their first win in the Gander Truck Series. Uh, Just kind of looking back over the uh, last five years, uh, drivers that have done that include Sheldon Creed, who did it July 11th this year at Kentucky, Todd Gilliland at Martinsville on Saturday, October the 26th last year, Uh, Spencer Boyd at Talladega on October the 12th last year, Stuart Friesen at Eldora on August the 1st, and Tyler Ankrum at Kentucky, uh, again, July 11th last year. Austin Hill did it at Daytona last year on February the 15th. Uh, now we're looking at the 2018 season. There's just one. That was Justin Haley who won at Gateway uh, on June the 23rd of that year. The next group will be all 2017 first-time winners. Chase Briscoe at Homestead on November the 17th. Noah Gregson at Martinsville, October the 28th, Ben Rhodes at Las Vegas, September the 30th, and Austin Sendrick at Canadian Tire Motorsports Park on September the 3rd. And I, and also, Kaz Grella won at Daytona on February the 24th of 2017. The next group are the 2016 winners, including Daniel Suarez at Phoenix on November the 11th, Grant Infinger at Talladega, October the 23rd. Brett Moffat at Michigan, August the 27th. Ben Kennedy at Bristol, August the 17th. And William Byron at Kansas on August the, I'm sorry, on May the 6th. So the big victory actually propelled Creed two spots into the driver's standings uh, to second just 46 points now behind Austin Hill, who has the standings lead. The win not only guarantees Creed spots in the playoffs, it's also padded his playoff points total, eight, the second most behind Grant Enfinger. In seven starts this season, the Alpine California star has put up one win at Kentucky, three top fives, five top tens, and a career-best average finish of 8.9. Jay, do you have the radio or the TV on? Is it too loud? Okay, because 
Yeah, we're getting the feedback there. Okay. Okay. Looking ahead to Texas this weekend, expect Creed to run up front. He's made three series starts at the 1.5-mile facility, posting a career-best finish of six last season. But also keep a lookout for another driver adding their name to the first-time winner's list at Texas Motor Speedway. It's been home to five first-time Gander Truck Series winners all time. Uh, Those include Jeff Burton, who won at Texas uh, in 2013 on June 7th. Clint Boyer did it uh, on November 3rd of 2006. Brendan Gaughan won his first race there June 7th of 2002. Travis Kvapel did it on 5th of 2001. And Brian Ruffner won his first truck race on October the 13th of 2000. So uh, a lot of first-time winners in uh, in this NASCAR kept tr- truck series uh, races. As, this truck series, again, as drivers, obviously we've got some veterans like Johnny Sauter uh, and Matt Crafton we've talked about, but the up-and-coming and developing drivers that we get to see in this series makes it for a great combination. Absolutely. Now, this uh, coming up at Texas Motor Speedway, the Gander RV and Outdoor Truck Series, we'll race the Vancor 250. Uh, it'll mark the eighth race of their 2020 season. Texas Motor Speedway has hosted the Gander trucks 44 times, dating back to the inaugural event on June 6, 1997. The event was won by Kenny Irwin Jr. running a Ford for owner Jim Herrick. The 44 races at Texas have produced 29 different pole winners and 23 different race winners. Mike Skinner leads the series in poles with five, and Todd Bodine leads the series with wins at Texas. Doesn't tell me how many. Uh, last season, the race at Texas was won again by Kyle Busch's Motorsports. Kyle Busch himself started fourth and led a dominating 97 of 147 laps and won. It was his fourth Gander Trucks career victory at the track. He picked up wins in 2009, 10, 14, and 19. His KBM teammate, Greg Biffle, then won the June race at Texas, sweeping the series events at the 1.5-mile facility last season for the team. Four former Gander Trucks Texas winners are entered in the Vancouver 250 this weekend. Talked about Johnny Sauter with five wins. Kyle Busch with four, Matt Crafton with two, and Justin Haley with one as he is entered in the GMS machine. This this weekend's race, again, will be 160 laps or 250.5 miles, broken up into the three stages, lap 40, uh, or 40 laps for the first two, and the final stage of 87 laps. Okay. Now we do have the starting lineup for the uh, race this weekend. And uh, I think we'll start from the bottom and move our way up, Jay, on this starting lineup for this particular event. There are uh, a total of 11 Toyotas, 7 Fords, and 18 Chevrolets in this truck series. Uh, In row 18, we have Jennifer Jo Cobb and Norm Benning. Uh, Then we have uh, in row 17, Clay Greenfield and Tom Viennes. 
In row 16, there's Tate Fogelman, a rookie, along with Cody Rohrbaugh. And in row 15, well, actually, I'll let you take row 15. Because that goes keep going. I, as I say, keep going. Oh. I can't. I can't pull the lineup up. Oh, okay. Uh, we've got in row fifteen. There's uh, Brennan Poole and Corey Roper. Uh, then in row fourteen, in twenty seventh place is Spencer Boyd. Twenty eighth place is Jordan Anderson. Row thirteen. Let me know when you get it. Uh, in yeah, row thirteen. I'm sorry. Yes. I don't know why this isn't working. You can, go ahead. Okay. And a- Akinori Akoda, Agoda, uh, he's going to be in 25th place. Austin Wayne South starts in 26th place. Row 12 has Angela Rutsch with uh, Ross Chastain in 24th place. Johnny Sauter is in row 11 starting at 21st place. And uh, Timmy Hill will be in 22nd place. Row 10 is Spencer Davis, another one of the rookies, along with another rookie, Tanner Gray, starting in 20th. Then in row 9th, we have uh, rookie Derek Krause starting 17th, followed by Stuart Friesen in 18th place. In row 8, there's Matt Crafton in 15th place, with another rookie, Rafael Assard, starting in 16th place. Row 7 has Justin Haley starting in 13th place with Ryan Truex in 14th place. Then you've got row six, uh, Ty Majeski, starting, a rookie, starting in 11th, followed by Natalie Decker in 12th. Row five is Tyler Ankrum with Ben Rhodes, starting in 10th. Row four has Christian Eckes, the rookie, starting in 7th place, followed by Brett Moffat in 8th. And then in row three is Todd Gilliland, followed by Zane Smith, another rookie, starting sixth. In the second row is Austin Hill, starting third, followed by Kyle Busch in fourth. And then you've got Sheldon Creed, last week's winner, starting on the pole with Grant Infinger, starting in second. Those are the only two drivers that have wins in this series so far. So it's going to be an interesting race at Texas Motor Speedway this weekend. It most certainly is, and with that random draw, it's coincidental that Grant Infinger and Sheldon Creed, the two with victories, start up front. But then you got Austin Hill again, who has been the gotten the most points, just doesn't have that win yet. Along with Kyle Busch, whose team gets him into that top twelve, sitting fourth there to start this one. Exactly, exactly. Okay, looking at the time here, we've got a little bit of time, Jay, if you want to go ahead. Uh, We've already covered the Truck Series uh, picks. Let's uh, get into the Xfinity Series picks at this point, and then the overall points for the Xfinity Series. Uh, All right, for the Xfinity Series, uh, Mike got first pick. He took Harrison Burton. Second pick went to, unfortunately, again, I was early pick myself. I went with Austin Sindrick. Uh, that allowed Sam to take Chase Briscoe. Next went a James with Riley Herbst. And then Owen picked Justin Allgaier. Again, I didn't actually look all the way through the list, but uh, Sharon got in with the sixth pick got to take Kyle Busch. And then Andy, who come off two wins in a row last uh, last weekend, 
he was last and took Ross Chastain. But it's been yeah, working for him. Like I said, he picked. What then? I started. I started to pick Ross Chastain. I said, "Let me just take a look at the uh, uh, entry list." And when I saw Kyle Busch, I'm like, "Oh my God, I'm going to get to pick by Kyle Busch for this one." So I, I couldn't believe he was still available. Uh, I know. I, I forgot that Texas, and even even after James picked Justin Haley, who I didn't see was on there in the uh, 24 truck. I still didn't scan all the way down. Um, I guess, like I said, I kind of was thinking Briscoe and Cindric have been the top two throughout the season. So, and I debated back and forth between those two. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. What's the overall points in the Xfinity series, Jay? Andy coming off the big double header with the, picking up two wins with Austin Cindric. He's uh he's putting a thumping on us on this one. He's at 66 points. Second place is me with 45. Sharon, you're at 44. Uh, Sam is then fourth with 38. James has 36. Owen has 35. And Mike has 27. So with the exception of Andy, 20 points up on us. The rest of us are all really close. Yeah, I guess so. Wow. He is uh, putting a thumping on us. Um, so we got to try to grab Briscoe whenever we can because <laughs> I think that's how he uh, uh, put the thumping on us to start off the season. Well, you know, and ironically, though, because he didn't get him for a couple of weeks, uh, he said he was going to chastain his way to the championship now. He was going to ride it, and he has had chastain in three of the last five, but that Austin Sindrick pairing uh, for that doubleheader really got us good. Oh, yeah, it did. Okay, now, uh, I know we gave did, – did, I'm not sure we did give our picks uh, for the All-Star race on Monday night. Do you want to go over that for the Open and the All-Star and how that all right, played well, out? All right. Um, for the Open, let's see. Go back mm-hmm. up here. Well, I'm just going to – this one I can't to go through. I'm just going to go across the board. Sharon, you had Tyler Reddick. Andy had Clint Boyer. I had Eric Almarola. Sam had Christopher Bell. James had William Byron. Owen had Ricky Stenhouse. And Mike had Matt DiBenedetto. Now, the way we do the points there was from the open, any of them that won a stage and transferred got seven points. So myself, James, and Mike all got seven points for those three drivers winning a stage and advancing. Then the points went down to... Andy with Clint Boyer got picked up three points. Owen uh, had Stenhouse for two. Sharon got one for Reddick. And Sam had none for Christopher Bell, even though he was a top finisher. Again, it was where we they finished in relative position to our other picks. In the All-Star itself, uh, like I mentioned, uh, I had Kyle Busch, who finished second to Chase Elliott, so I only got six points. But that gave me 13 out of 14 possible for the event. Next up in that event was Kevin Harvick, who Andy had, and Brad Keselowski. James had him. Denny Hamlin got Mike three points. The two points went to Sam with Alex Bowman. Sharon again got one with Martin Truex. And unfortunately, Owen had Kurt Busch, uh, so that didn't pick him up any. And total yeah, for that, I think we had three. Yeah, it was for my points. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I think. There were three that had two points. Um, 
you, Sam, and Owen all had two. Then was Andy with eight, Mike with 10, James with 11, and myself with 13. So I came out a little bit ahead there. Okay. All right. Next up, we have um, the NASCAR Xfinity Series, and they are racing the My Bariatric Solutions 300 at Texas Motor Speedway again on Saturday, July the 18th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Coverage will be on NBCSN starting at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Radio coverage is on PRN, Sirius XM NASCAR Radio as well. They will be racing a distance of 300 miles over 200 laps. Stage 1 ends on lap 45, stage 2 on lap 90, and the last stage ends on the last lap, lap 200. And guess what? Last year's race winner was Kyle Busch. I think he may have a breakthrough this weekend. As I say, yeah, we say that a lot, don't we? Mm-hmm. Now, taking a look at the Sunoco rookie spotlight, JGR's Riley Herbs grabs a gear. Now, Kentucky Speedway was good to Joe Gibbs Racing's Riley Herbs as he won back-to-back Sunoco, Sunoco Rookie of the Race awards, finishing runner-up on Thursday night, which was a career-best finish, and then 10th on Friday night. As a result, Herbst leapfrogged Ryan Sieg in the standings is now 10th, 69 points up on fellow Sunoco rookie Mike Schneider in the 13th spot, which is the first spot outside the playoff cutoff. The 21-year-old is second in the Naxxar Xfinity Series Sunoco Rookie of the Year standings, 116 points back from Harrison Burton, who's currently in that standings lead. Team starts this season. Herbst has put up two top fives, and eight top tens. This will be Herp's series track debut at Texas Motor Speedway this weekend. Of the six rookies this season, Herp's Joe Gibbs Racing teammate Harrison Burton is the only one with previous previous Xfinity Series experience at the 1.5-mile track as he made his series track debut last November when he started second and finished seventh. Look at the rest of them. We mentioned Harrison Burton leading. He's sitting at 492 points. Riley Herbst at 376. At 274 is Jesse Little. At 202 is Joe Graff Jr. Myatt Schneider we talked about at 155. And then Cody Vanderwall sitting at 90. So right there, again, Harrison Burton got off to a pretty strong start picking up those wins early on and been strong all year. Uh, could be tough to catch him, but if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be his teammate. Okay. Well, there's been five different winners in the last five races, and this weekend could make it a six-pack. It's the 39th running of the NASCAR Xfinity Series race at Texas Motor Speedway, and interestingly, in the last five series races at the track, they've had five different winners. Eric Jones won in 2017, Ryan Blaney won in 18, Cole Custer also in 18, Kyle Busch won in 2019, Christopher Bell also won in 2019. Now, this weekend, Kyle Busch is the only previous Texas one winner who's entered in Saturday's My Bariatric Solutions 300. So putting odds on his favor, uh, putting, odd, putting the odds in his favor uh, of keeping that streak continuing. 
Now, 38 previous NASCAR Xfinity Series races at Texas have produced 24 different pole winners as well, 19 different race winners, and not surprisingly, the one who could end the different winner's streak is Joe Gibbs Racing superstar Kyle Busch. He leads the series in just about every significant stat at Texas. He has four poles. He has nine wins, 16 top fives, 17 top tens, and he's tied with Kevin Harvick and Matt Kenseth in that category, and he has 1,686 laps led. Now, this weekend's race will be 200 laps, over 300 miles, and will be broken up into three stages. Uh, As we mentioned a little earlier, the first two stages uh, will have to be 45 laps each, and the last stage is 110 laps. One driver to watch to keep the Xfinity Series different winner streak alive is Texas at Texas's Colleague Racing's Ross Chastain. The eighth-generation watermelon farmer turned NASCAR driver finished second in the Xfinity Series playoff race at Texas Motor Speedway last season, leading 29 laps in the race. Chastain is already having a strong start in 2020 because right now he's ranked fourth in the series driver standings, the highest-ranked driver without a win. Now, in 15 starts this season, he's collected six top fives. He has 13 top tens, both career best, including two runner-up finishes at Talladega and Pocono. So uh, it's a good track for Chastain. Andy was the last to pick, and he took him. So we'll see what happens uh, if Chastain can make it happen this weekend. All right. Now, Cindric talked about uh, Andy having him last weekend. He becomes the first to win back-to-back in one series at the same track in the same weekend. His Team Penske's driver not only broke through and got his first and second win of 2020, guaranteeing his spot in the playoffs, but he also etched his name in the record books, becoming the first driver in NASCAR National Series history to win in consecutive days at the same track in the same series. With the two wins, the 21-year-old Sindrick is now third in the Xfinity Series driver's standings, just 33 points back from Chase Briscoe in the standings lead. Sindrick's victories also boosted his playoff point total to 15, which is third most in the series. In 15 starts this season, the Mooresville, North Carolina narrative has racked up two wins uh, with the Kentucky sweep, nine top fives, which is tied with Briscoe for series most, and 11 top tens. Expect Sindrick to keep the pressure on his competitors this weekend at Texas Motor Speedway, as it's been one of his better tracks. In four starts, he has posted two top fives and three top tens, plus he leads all drivers entered into this weekend in average finish at Texas with a 6.5. That's pretty impressive. Okay, we also have the uh, starting lineup for the Xfinity Series race at uh, Texas Motor Speedway. Again, we'll go from the bottom up. Uh, I don't know if you have that, Jay, or not. I am working on it. Hopefully this one loads a little bit quicker than the uh, Truck Series one did. Okay. I'll just let everybody know there are two Fords, 
eight Toyotas and 27 Chevrolets entered for this weekend, uh, along with 37 cars. You want me to go ahead and start? Yeah, go ahead and start. It's loading up for me now. Okay, we'll go from the bottom up. Row 19 is uh, is starting in 37th place is Stephen Light uh, in the number 66 car. Uh, row 18 in 36th place is Tommy Joe Martins. And in 35th, we have Kelby Howard. 17th row is 34th place, Finney Miller. And in 33rd place, Kyle Weatherman. In row 16, we have Cody Vanderwall, one of the rookies, uh, starting in 32nd. In 31st place is Bailey Curry. Do you have it yet? Yep, row 15 then will be Matt Mills in the number 5 with the JF Electric Chevrolet and Chad Fincham in the number 13 Toyota. Row 14, there's where we'll see Kyle Busch in the number 54 with the Twix Cookies and Cream Toyota, and Timmy Hill in the number 61 Toyota. Row 13, that'll be Timmy, I'm sorry. Yeah, row 13 will be uh, Stefan Parsons in the number 99, and Joe Graff Jr. in the number 08, one of the rookies we talked about. Row 12, that'll be Josh Williams in the number 92, and David Starr in the 07. Row 11, and Jeremy Clements in the number 51, as well as Jeffrey Earnhardt in one of the JD Motorsports machines. Okay. Uh, Row 10, starting in 20th place, is another one of the rookies, Jesse Little in the number 4 JD Motorsports Chevrolet. Then you've in 19th place is Brandon Brown, uh, driving the number 68 Chevrolet. Row 9, starting in 18th place, is Ryan Seek, driving the number 39 Chevrolet. 17th place is B.J. McLeod, driving the number 6 for J.D. Motorsports Chevrolet. Row 8, we've got Alex LeBay in, in the number 90 car, starting 16th. And in, row, in uh, 15th place, is Brett Moffat driving the 02 Chevrolet. Row 7 is starting in 14th place is another rookie, Myatt Snyder, driving RSS Racing Chevrolet in the number 93. And Dexter Bean will start 13th driving the number 36 Chevrolet. Row 6, we have Chase Briscoe starting in the number 98 uh, Ford Performance Racing Ford. And in 11th place is Justin Haley driving the number 11 for uh, Colleague Racing's Chevrolet. All right, your top 10 by row. Row number five, that'll be Anthony Alfredo in the RCR number 21 Death Wish Coffee. To his inside will be Bass Pro Shops BRCC sponsored number nine at Junior Motorsports, Noah Gregson. Row number four, we talked about him. There's the Watermelon Man with the Nutrient AG Solutions. The number 10 for Colleg Racing, Ross Chastain. Inside of him will be the Rookie of the Year leader at this point, Harrison Burton in the number 20, Dex Imaging, JGR Toyota. Row number three will be Brandon Jones 
JGR teammate with Menards as a sponsor and driver number 19, and another JGR machine of Riley Herbst. Again, another rookie in the number 18 Monster Energy Toyota. The top four, the second row on the outside, that'll be the number seven of Junior Motorsports Brandt Tracker Technologies of Justin Algar. To his inside will be the 22 of Team Penske, Austin Sindrick, with Money Lion on the car this weekend. And your front row belongs to Junior Motorsports. That'll be the number eight this weekend being driven by Jeb Burton, sponsored by State Water Heaters, longtime sponsor of the Burton family. And the number one spot goes to the number one car of Michael Annette in the Pilot Flying J Chevy from Junior Motorsports. Okay. Again, uh, the track record is held by Kyle Busch. He did that uh, on April 5th, 2008, at a time of uh, 1 hour, 58 minutes, and 39 seconds. His speed was 151.707. Uh, we'll have to wait and see if he can break that break his own record uh, this weekend at Texas Motor Speedway. Certainly looking forward to it, and that'll put Kyle Busch, I believe, again, and we've seen him do this in the past, all three races at the track. Uh, we've seen him do it where he's been even at different tracks, so it tells you the talent and the determination and drive of that driver. Yes, indeed. He is uh, certainly entered in all three races this weekend, and any time that happens, he's looking to sweep all three races, uh, and usually not real happy if he's not able to do that. So uh, look for I, – I really think this could be a breakthrough weekend for Kyle Busch. All right. Uh, we are a little bit ahead of ourselves here. Uh, at 829, uh, let's go ahead and uh, give our picks for the Cup Series this weekend. I know we're missing maybe one or two of those picks. All right. Well, let's see. Where did we start this weekend? Owen got to start us this weekend uh, following the All-Star combination points coming out of the All-Star event. Uh, Owen picked first and went with Eric Almarola. Sharon came next with Kevin Harvick, so Stuart Haas Racing went right off the get-go. Sam followed that up with Ryan Blaney, and that left Mike his opportunity to take one of his favorite, the race winner from at Bristol, with Chase Elliott. And then Andy took Denny Hamlin, and I'll double-check, but I don't think I've, uh, James has checked in with me yet. Nope. Uh, again, his schedule. Oh, okay. I normally catch him. Yeah, I normally catch him midway through the night. Uh, James gets to pick, and then I got to pick last. So, still some great drivers out there. Uh, actually, Kyle yeah. Busch has not gone yet for the Cup Series. So, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. All right, and looking at the uh, the points just for the Cup Series. Again, this one has been pretty tight all year long. I got a few extra points this past weekend. I'm sitting atop the board at 80. Andy is at 74. Sam is third now at 60. Owen is up to fourth at 58. Sharon, you're now fifth at 55. And then James is right there behind you at 49. And Mike at 44. And there again, even with the uh, late start that Mike had, He's still within a couple races of catching up. Yeah. 
I've been uh, I've been picking Martin Truex Jr. quite a bit this year, and it's not been his best season so far. So that's really hurt me in that Cup Series. Um, and I've got him. Actually, I've got Harvick picked uh, for Texas Motor Speedway. So we'll see what happens uh, this weekend. Hopefully, he'll pick up that win and help me out here. I need some points in this Cup Series. Well, and we do. The Cup Series one, like I said, that's probably one of the the tighter ones overall. I take that back. The Truck Series is, again, there's fewer races, but the Cup one's been pretty competitive, and I will Mm -hmm. give the the overall here. Again, we talked about Andy being second, first, and tied for first, so he leads overall at 164. I'm second at 139, so 25 points just behind him in the overall. Third, Sharon... You're holding on to that by a point. You got 121. Sam is up to 120. And Owen is at 117. James is at 102. Came over the 100-point mark with his good weekend. And again, Mike, with the late start, only has 85 points, but missed actually several races across the board through through three series. So hopefully he can catch up once we hit the playoffs, do the double points. Uh, Can change in a hurry. It sure can. Okay, I'm going to go ahead now, uh, since we do have some time. Uh, The race winner of the All-Star race, as we talked about, was uh, Chase Elliott. I do have uh, some post-race audio queued up here, and uh, we'll go ahead and hear from Chase Elliott and maybe even Alan Gustafson uh, after winning his first All-Star race. Uh, Bristol Motor Speedway on Wednesday night. So let's hear what he has to say. All right. We are now joined by our race winner, Chase Elliott. Uh, Chase, before we go to questions, why don't you just start off by uh, running through your uh, all-star race win there for us. Yeah, just a, uh, you know, super special night. Um, a special event. You know, any any race is hard to win, but but this is a special race to win. Uh, something that locks you in the All Star race for life, and and that's um, that, that's extremely special to join Dad and, and winning this race uh, means a lot to me as well. Um, just just a big thanks to our partners, Universe, uh, Napa Hooters, Kelly Blue Book, Mountain Dew, uh, Chevrolet, uh, all our partners that that make this go around. They um, you know, they stood by us through some. You know, some, some not so uh, not so spectacular years. Uh, so we've had a rough couple weeks, and uh, we ruined Mr. Hendrick's birthday on Sunday by running uh, pathetic. Uh, so it was really nice to uh, slightly make up for that tonight. Awesome. We're going to go to questions. Uh, we'll start with Bob Cochran. Yeah, Chase, you had a really good car back in May at Bristol. Was the car just as good tonight? Was it better? How would you kind of rate it? Uh, to be honest, I, I think it was a little bit better. I think we improved our car, at least for the short run. You know, the the spring or the race a few weeks ago, I felt like was consisted of more long runs than it did short runs. But the short run came down to the very end, and I felt like that was our that was our weak point in that event. Um, so we put a lot of emphasis emphasis in trying to be better on the short run, and and I think that uh, I thought we hit it really well tonight. And on those in that last segment, are you kind of looking in your mirror and saying? When am I going to get bumped? When am I going to? When somebody going to try to wreck me for this thing? Yeah, I mean, you you don't. Uh, I think you have to expect that, you know, in, in any event. Uh, 
you know, especially this one, though, there's no points on the line or anything. Uh, but, you know, the, the goal is to get far enough away where they don't have that option. So it, uh, luckily it worked out that way tonight and got a good restart there at the end and was able to put together a good 15 laps to, uh, to seal the deal. Thank you. Next, we're going to go to Mark Garrow. Congratulations, Chase, uh, on the win. Um, you just alluded to a moment ago this being a big win. Just just how big is it to you, and why is it so big to you? Well, I mean, this is, uh, you know, to me, this is one of those prestigious events that, that the Cup Series only has, right? I mean, this is, this, is a, this is a special race on the schedule every year. There's a lot of hype around it. Um, and the other thing about it is, you know, it's something you have to race your way into. Um, and luckily, we've, we've raced our way into this deal for life now. So, um, you know, that, that means a lot. You know, it, to me, it reminds me a lot of, you know, the, the clash or, or something at the beginning of the year in, in some ways. But I think this race is bigger than that because you're racing against the, the very best of, over, over recent times and in anybody's career, um, you know, to, that have locked themselves into this event. So, you know, to beat the best, I think, is, uh, is always special. And this race, the, the only other time it was run away from Charlotte was Atlanta. Your dad won it, and now the, the second time <laughs> it's left Charlotte. So what does it mean to, to uh, yeah. have a victory in this race yeah. just like your dad? Yeah, you know, I didn't know that uh, until – I knew that, but I, I didn't really put it together until Winston told me that there on the, on the front straightaway. So that, that's super cool, you know, to join – uh, and then somebody told me upstairs a second ago that I think the only other family uh, duo to win to, to win the All Star race were, were the Earnhardts. Um, you know, so anytime you can you can join them and anything racing is very special. So to join Dad and, and winning this event, um, heck, I mean that that that's uh, that's not just special. I mean that that's that's a lot. You know, a lot of years and a lot of history for everything to come full circle like that. Pretty dang cool. Okay, uh, that is pretty darn cool. Only the Earnhardts and now the Elliots have won uh, all-star races. And how unique is it that uh, the only other time the race was not held at Charlotte Motor Speedway was at Atlanta, and that's when his dad, Bill Elliott, won the all-star race. <laughs> Bristol's the second time that that's happened, and this time it's uh, Chase Elliott winning. That that's one of those storylines you you can't possibly even even write. Uh, I mean, for that to happen, <laughs> the two races that haven't been at Charlotte out of the what twenty thirty some year history um, for it to both be Elliots was pretty cool. Yeah, that that really is. Okay, we'll go ahead and get started with our uh, Cup Series race that's going to be taking place at uh, Texas Motor Speedway, and we'll see if we have some time left over. If we do, I'll continue more of that interview. Uh, But they will be racing the O'Reilly Auto Parts 500 uh, this Sunday, July the 19th, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, NBC Sports Network will carry pre-race coverage starting at 2.30 p.m. Eastern with uh, radio coverage on PRN and Sirius XM NASCAR Radio. They'll be racing a distance of 500.5 miles over 334 laps. Stage 1 ends on lap 85, stage 2 on lap 170, and the last stage ends on the last lap, lap 334. Believe it or not, last year's race winner was not Kyle Busch. 
it was race winner was Denny Hamlin. Well, Hamlin winning already this year. We'll get to him in a little bit. But we talked about him from the all-star race, having to race his way in. But the Wood Brothers, Matt and Benedetto has been off to a strong start. Coming off the this season with the Wood Brothers number 21, the 28-year-old from Grass Valley, California, is making the most of 2020. Again, winning the all-star open and earning a spot into the all-star race for the first time in his career. And to top that, he is currently 12th in the standings in playoff contention, just 17 races into his first season driving that famous number 21 Wood Brothers Racing Ford. And Benedetto has been prime in prime form this season, posting two top fives and five top tens, including a runner-up finish at Las Vegas and a third-place finish this last weekend at Kentucky. His average finish this year is a career-best 14.8. Now, heading into this weekend at Texas Motor Speedway, De Benedetto has a 68-point cushion on the postseason cut line. He has made nine starts at the 1.5-mile track, posting an average finish 28.1 with a career-best of 14th, which came in last year's playoff race. And the car he's in this year and the start he's had, I see that number decreasing significantly. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, we just mentioned Denny Hamlin is the defending winner at Texas Motor Speedway, and uh, he, he wants to go back-to-back. The only driver that's been able to go win-for-win uh, win with NASCAR Cup Series driver standings leader Kevin Harvick this season is Joe Gibbs Racing's Denny Hamlin. Both Hamlin and Harvick lead the series in wins this year with four wins apiece. But Hamlin is focused on snapping that tie this weekend at Texas Motor Speedway, not only getting his fifth win of 2020, but defending his victory in this event last year. The Virginian is currently sixth in the driver point standings, 122 markers behind Kevin Harvick in the series lead. But he also has the series most playoff points at 23 at this point in the season. In 17 starts this year, he has stockpiled four wins in the Daytona 500, Darlington, Homestead, and Pocono, and he has also nine top fives and ten top tens. Digging into the numbers at Texas Motor Speedway has been a feast or famine kind of a track for Denny Hamlin, who in 28 starts has three wins, He swept the races there in 2010, and he also won last year. He has seven top fives and 13 top tens. What is deceiving by those stats is that he only has one DNF at Texas in his career, but in his last six starts, uh, he has the win, a third-place finish, and four finishes outside the top 25. It either goes really well for Hamlin in Texas or it can go very poorly. So we'll have to see which path he's on this weekend at Texas Motor Speedway. Maybe we should right, do well, we got... every other one. Okay. Uh, we're looking at some former Texas winners that are looking for a win in 2020. In this weekend's NASCAR Cup Series action at Texas Motor Speedway Eight former series winners at the 1.5-mile track are entered for Sunday's O'Reilly Auto Parts 500 
and half of them are looking for their first win of the 2020 season. And I'll start down here with Kurt Busch. He's rounding out the four previous Texas winners looking for their first victory in 2020 is Chip Ganassi Racing's Kurt Busch, who's currently wrestling a 34-race winless streak that that dates back to the race at Kentucky last season. Heading into this weekend at Texas, Bush is ranked 10th in the driver's standings, 183 points back from Kevin Harvick in the series lead. In 17 starts on the year, he's amassed one pole, four top fives, and 10 top 10s. Now looking ahead to Sunday, Texas could be the place where he gets back to his winning ways. The 41-year-old Las Vegas native has made 34 career starts at Texas, posting a series-leading three poles, a one win in 2009, three top fives, and 21 top tens. He finished ninth in the March Texas race last season. Okay, next up is Ryan Newman. The 2020 NASCAR Cup Series season has been a whirlwind, to say the least. Uh, The Indiana native kicked the season off with a dramatic last lap crash in the 2000 uh, Daytona 500 2020 Daytona 500 that sidelined him for three races, but has since returned to competition and is looking for his first win this year. Newman's last series win came 121 races ago, and that was at Phoenix in 2017. Right now, Roush Fenway Racing veteran is 26th in the series driver standings with a playoff waiver in hand looking for his very first win of the year. Uh, He wants to click that ticket to the postseason. In 14 starts this year, Newman has accumulated one top 10 and has an average finish of 18.6. With 136 points between Newman and 16th place Jimmy Johnson in the final postseason transfer spot, it will most likely take a win for Newman to make the playoffs, and Texas could be the place that he can make that happen. In just 33 starts at the 1.5-mile track, he's put up two poles, one win in 2003, has three top fives and six top tens. He finished 11th in March at Texas just last season. Well, another driver that's in a similar boat with that is Matt Kenseth. As Chip Ganassi's driver of the number 42 now, looking for his first win of the 2020 season, heads into the weekend at Texas Motor Speedway, ready to get his third career victory at the 1.5-mile facility. Kenseth has received the playoff waiver after replacing Kyle Larson in that number 42 Chevrolet this season, but it also will most likely need to get win to get into the postseason as he's currently... 28th in the driver's standings, 178 points back from Jimmy Johnson in the 16th and final playoffs transfer spot. In 13 starts this year, Kenseth has put up one top five and two top ten. The veteran from Cambridge, Wisconsin, has made 30 starts at Texas, posting one pole, two wins coming in 2002 and 2011, total of 14 top fives and 19 top tens. He also leads the series in key pre-race loop data stats at Texas, which the driver rating at 103.8 and an average running position of 9.351. And he's definitely been looking better in the past couple weeks as they've more adapted to his car setup than what they were running with Kyle Larson's. 
All right. The last driver we're going to look at that's a former winner at Texas, still looking for a win this season, is Kyle Busch. The defending series champ and Joe Gibbs Racing driver has three NASCAR Cup Series Texas Motor Speedway wins under his belt, but he heads into this weekend looking for his first victory this year. The 35-year-old Las Vegas negative is currently 11th in the series driver standings, 198 points back from Kevin Harvick in the series lead. Now, in 17 starts this season, he's gathered seven top fives, nine top tens, including three runner-up finishes. Bush's resume at Texas has been solid, posting one pole, three wins in 2013, 16, and 18, all the spring races, and 12 top fives, along with 15 top tens in 28 starts. So a lot to look forward to with potentially one of those four drivers getting their first win this season. Well, and we mentioned it several times in all of that, and that's that playoff bubble, and that's where the seven-time champion, Jimmy Johnson, sits in that last playoff transfer spot. After not making the playoffs last season for the first time in his career, Hendrick Motorsports and Jimmy Johnson finds himself teetering on the playoff bubble again, now just 24 points up on 17th place Austin Dillon, uh, 17 races into this 2020 season. This year, Johnson and crew chief Cliff Daniels are starting to click and find some success. The pair have amassed two top fives and six top tens in the 17 starts. But the biggest dark cloud looming over Johnson's head is the current winless streak he cannot seem to shake. Driver the number 48 has 83 victories to his name, but has not been able to get back to victory lane in 112 races, which was in in 111 attempts as he was sidelined for one race due to the COVID-19. But if there's a track that Jimmy Johnson could turn it around that's not named over, it would be Texas Motor Speedway. Johnson leads the series and wins at Texas with seven victories coming in 07, 2012, 13, 14, a sweep in 15, and then again in 17. In total, he's made 33 starts at the 1.5-mile facility, putting up two poles, those seven wins, 16 top fives, which is the series most, and 22 top tens, which is tied with Kevin Harvick for the series most. And looking back to last last year for this race, he finished fifth in the March race. Okay, next up is Elliot. He's really caught a wave of momentum with his all-star win. Some of this we've already mentioned, so I'll skip that. Uh, But the Hendrick Motorsports uh, driver, Chase Elliott, led 60 of 140 laps en route to also earning the $1.1 million paycheck on Wednesday night at Bristol Motor Speedway in the NASCAR All-Star Race. Not only did the special NASCAR win fatten Elliott's wallet, it also righted his number nine team's line of sight on the championship. Now, he, we mentioned that he and his father joined the Earnhardts uh, as winners in the All-Star Race. Uh, and now heading into Texas this weekend, Elliott and his number nine team will look to keep their success flowing in eight starts at Texas Motor Speedway. Elliott has posted two top fives and five top tens. 
from the All-Star Race is a Snooki, Sunoco Rookie of the Year spotlight, and that's all the Cole Custer you can muster. Coming from Stuart Haas Racing's Rookie of the Year candidate, Cole Custer made a stellar four-wide pass for the lead at Kentucky Speedway on the final lap to take his first career NASCAR Cup Series checkered flag. It was the first time a rookie has won in the NASCAR Cup Series since Chris Buescher accomplished the feat at Pocono back in 2016. Not only did his way win his way into that all-star race on Wednesday night, he's now guaranteed his spot in the playoffs and a chance to run for the title. He currently sits 20th in points, but his win lifted a lot of the regular season pressure off his team to try and make it into the postseason. Now the 22-year-old from Ladero Ranch, California, can focus on honing his skills, padding his points standings position, and collecting playoff points with less consequence. In 17 starts this season, he's posted that one win, two top fives, and three top tens, as an average finish of 19.5. This weekend will be Custer's series track debut at Texas Motor Speedway, but no, he is no stranger to the 1.5-mile track. He's made six Xfinity starts at Texas, posting one win in 2018, four top fives, and five top tens. Okay. Now, Harvick looks to make it back-to-back at Texas. After Kentucky, Stuart Haas Racing's Kevin Harvick has a firm grasp on the NASCAR Cup Series driver standings lead. He's up 88 points on second-place driver Brad Keselowski. Now, the California native looks to Texas Motor Speedway this weekend to not only get his fifth win of the season, but to make it two in a row in the Lone Star State, as he won from the pole in last season's playoff race. Only three NASCAR Cup Series drivers have posted consecutive wins at Texas. Jimmy Johnson did it in the 2014 playoff race and then a 2015 sweep. Carl Edwards had a 2008 sweep. Denny Hamlin swept in 2010, and this weekend, Harvick has the opportunity to become the fourth. In 34 starts, the series most, at Texas, he's posted two poles and three wins. He also has 11 top fives, 22 top tens, which is tied with Jimmy Johnson for the series most. Now, despite all that success, Johnson will have his work cut out for him on Sunday as All three of his previous victories have come in the playoff races at Texas. He won in 2017, 18, and 19. He finished eighth in the March Texas race last season. Now, Harvick's consistent success and what has set him apart from the competition this season is in 17 starts this year, he's collected four wins, a winning percentage of 23.5%. He has 10 top fives, the series most, and 14 top tens. Again, that is the series most. All right. As we look ahead here to Texas Motor Speedway, they're following up that thrilling Wednesday night all-star race at Bristol Motor Speedway. This weekend's race at Texas will mark the halfway point of the 2020 season that has already produced nine different winners, including the Snoko Rookie of the Year contender Cole Custer's thrilling victory at Kentucky last weekend, again the first time since Chris Buescher in Pocono at 2016. Overall, Texas Motor Speedway has hosted 38 NASCAR Cup Series races, 
dating back to the inaugural event on April 6, 1997, event, event that was won by former driver-turned-NBC-SN sports analyst Jeff Burton by more than four seconds over NASCAR Hall of Famer Dale Jarrett came home second. The 38 series races at Texas Motor Speedway have garnered 25 different pole winners and 19 different race winners. Two of the 19 different Texas winners got their first series career win at Texas Motor Speedway. That would be Jeff Burton in 1997 and NASCAR Hall of Famer Dale Earnhardt Jr. in 2000. Chip Ganassi Racing's Kurt Busch leads the series in poles at Texas with three coming in 2015, 17, and 18. And the seven-time NASCAR Cup Series champion, Jimmy Johnson, leads the series in Texas victories with the seven wins we mentioned in 07, 12, 13, 14, the 15 sweep, and 2017. We mentioned last season's race winner, uh, Denny Hamlin, is the team's eighth victory at Texas. That's his third most. In total, nine different organizations have won at Texas Motor Speedway in the Cup Series, led by Hendrick Motorsports and Roush Fenway Racing with nine wins each. Another thing worth noting in this weekend at Texas will be this this will be the seventh time this theory, season the series has competed on one a 1.5 mile track. The six previous 1.5s this year have put up six different race winners. Joey Logano did it at Las Vegas, Brad Keselowski on the first race at Charlotte, Chase Elliott the second race at Charlotte, Kevin Harvick was your Atlanta race winner, and then Danny Hamlin at Homestead Miami and most recently Cole Custer at Kentucky. Okay. Uh, we do have a starting lineup also for the 24th Annual Riley Auto Parts uh, 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 500 here. Uh, yeah, 500. Uh, I'm going to start at the top down on this one because we've got a limited amount of time to get this done, and we'll go as far down as we possibly can. Uh, row right. one, Eric Almarola has the pole with Ryan Blaney starting in second followed by Kurt and Kyle Busch on row two and starting in third and fourth place. Row three has Kevin Harvick starting fifth and uh, Brad Keselowski starting in third in um, sixth place. Row four is Denny Hamlin and Chase Elliott starting seventh and eighth. Row five is Joey Logano and Martin Truex Jr. starting in ninth and tenth. The sixth row, that's where we'll see the 21 of Matt Benedetto and Hendrick Motorsports 88 of Alex Bowman. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. in 13th, and Bubba Wallace in 14th. Row 8 would be Ryan Newman in the number 6 Roush Fenway Racing, as well as Chris Busher, Chris Busher in the number 17. Row 9 be the 14 this Stuart Haas Machina Clint Boyer, and the 24 Hendrick Motorsports of William Byron, number 24. The 10th row, that'll be Cole Custer we talked about, rookie Cole Custer in the 41, and seven-time champion Jimmy Johnson. Okay, starting in 21st place in row 11 is Austin Dillon with Matt Kisseth in 22nd place. Row 12 and starting 23rd and 24th is Eric Jones and another rookie, Tyler Ruddick. Row 13th. Uh, in 25th and 26th place is Ryan Priest and another rookie, Quinn Huff. Uh, starting on row 14th 
in 27th and 28th place is Garrett Smithley and the rookie, John Hunter Nemechek. And starting 29th and 30th in row 15th are Gray Golding and Ty Dillon. All right, running out the field, 31st through 40th. That'll be the 51 of J.J. Yaley, the 15 of Brennan Poole, a rookie, the rookie Christopher Bell in the number 95, as well as Michael McDowell in the 34, Joey Gase in the 77, the 32 of Cora LaJoy, and the final four spots, 96 of Daniel Suarez, the 66 of Timmy Hill, the 78 of B.J. McLeod, and the 7 of Reed Sorensen. That's your full starting lineup. All right. Uh, And it is at the top of the hour, and that does mean that it is now time for our NASCAR Hot Topic Sound Off, so we'll move right into it, Jay. Uh, Joining us uh, for Hot Topics right now is, I believe, uh, Mike Orzel. Hello. Okay. Also joining us is our co-host, Andy Lasky. So welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you, Sharon. How's uh, everyone doing tonight? Doing well. Good. All right. Uh, Andy, why don't you kick us off on the hot topics for tonight? Well, I, I wanted to get everyone's thoughts on some of the uh, the latest and greatest features that we saw from the All-Star Race. And I, what I mean by that would be the, the underglow, the, the move numbers, and the choose cone. Obviously, we've talked about this on previous shows, but certainly now that we've seen it in action, wanted to see what your thoughts were. Okay, Mike, let's start with you. Yeah, that's a lot to break down here, um, so kind of going sequentially here. With regard to the uh, the paint jobs, I think there was a lot of hit and miss. Um, at the movement of the number, I think it lended itself to logos that had a little bit more of a round or square shape to them, um, and that led to paint jobs that I thought looked really good, like Matt Kenseth, uh, William Byron, Bubba Wallace, and Ryan Newman all their primary sponsor logos tended to fit well on that quarter panel, or, the, you know, I don't know if it'd be considered a quarter panel or just a forward part of the door, um, but it seemed like it fit and scaled well in there. Conversely, the logos that tended to have a longer text look to them, I don't think they looked as good. So, uh, uh, cars like Chase Elliott, Denny Hamlin, and Ricky Stenhouse, who had those longer uh, text uh, logos, I don't think those scaled as well. And a lot of times, especially like with Denny Hamlin, it was more just a relocation of the uh, that longer logo from above the rear wheel to just in front of the number. Uh, I'm not saying it was a bad idea. I think with a little bit more time and development to get some artistry involved in, in working a paint scheme around it, there may be some potential there. But I would say for a first time out, it was, it was mixed results. It wasn't something that was terrible. Uh, it's definitely something that has some potential, but it definitely has some room to grow as well. Um, you want to uh, continue around on the paint jobs and then come back around and talk about the other features? You want me to go into the other stuff as well? Go ahead into the other stuff. Sure. Um, for the underglow stuff, um, that's the one I think I was kind of most disappointed in. Um, I get that it was a night race, but I still thought that the uh, the lights were drowned out by the track lighting for the most part. Especially, it, it was 
I'm not sure what it looked like on everyone else's screen. I was watching on a fairly small one. Um, but from what I could tell, it looked like the only light that was visible was coming out of the back end of the car. So the cars almost looked like lightning bugs or something going around the track versus that uniform glow that we saw in some of the promotion pictures that looked like it was coming out from the entire underside of the car. I understand it's somewhat of a limitation of the cars being as low to the ground as they are. Um, so that's kind of what it looked like. The other thing I would like to see if they continue down this road with it is a little bit more uh, utilization of, of the information that can be provided. Um, in the all-star race, it was exclusively tied to the manufacturer. So you had specific color sets for each manufacturer, which I thought was a neat idea, but I think they could go a little bit further with that if they decide they're going to continue down that road. Uh, two potential ideas for that, uh, different colors for lead lap cars versus lap down cars. So you can immediately look and see which car on the racetrack may be racing for position versus just passing a lap down car. Or another idea would be have it related to the driver's most recent position change. So a color may be green if their most recent position change was a gain of position or red if the most recent position change was a loss of position. And then we could really have a better visual representation of who may be coming or going on the racetrack at any given time. Um, the choose cone, I think, the, from what I understand, the TV broadcast may have done them a little bit of a disservice. Uh, I watched Erica Stepp's video that he, he was actually at the race in the grandstands, and his perception of the choose cone was that it had a much bigger impact on the race than what was presented on the TV. Um, from what I saw, it looked like the majority of the restarts, they didn't really focus too much on what was going on with regard to the choose cone. And really the only notable time I can think about them talking about it was on that last restart where Brad Keselowski chose to line up behind Ryan Blaney and Chase Elliott moved up to the front row from there. Um, I think with as much hype as they put on it going into the race, I think the Fox team could have maybe done a little bit better job of focusing on it and its impact in the race. Um, I think there's potential there. Uh, I think it needs to be explained and explored further, both to the fans and how, uh, how it can impact the race going forward if they choose to bring that rule back in future races. Okay, Jay, you're up. Well, with the first two, I know we talked about them going into the race. I don't get real wrapped up in, it doesn't really affect me. I'm there to watch the on-track racing. So the number change uh, again, doesn't doesn't matter to me where the number is. If it works well with their sponsor and paint scheme, you know, I, I don't see why they can't let them do whatever they want. Uh, I understand they like to keep some uniformity, but so I'm okay with it either way. Yes, I get into certain paint schemes, but as far as where the number is, what the number looks like, whether it's upside down or on the left or the right, it really doesn't impact me because I'm there to watch the race. So the glow thing, the underglow, um, for the night race, for the all-star, it was kind of cool. I like Homework's ideas. Again, you're talking about the money spent then, if it's got to change colors during a, a scoring each lap, I think uh, is going to get a little excessive and, and really the potential to mess up. If you're talking about lead lap car versus not, that light flickers and something, somebody thinks there's a car on the lead lap and races them harder or whatever, uh, opens that door to some issues. So be kind of leery about that. Second off, during a day race, you said it wasn't even lighting up real well on a night race. It's not even going to show up on a day race. So I, I don't see the point in really pursuing that other than in an event like the all-star race or a night race. Um, I can see it, but I just don't think it's worth it as far as pursuing it on a regular basis. When it comes to the choose line, that one, again, I was really excited about. 
And unfortunately, I think with the all-star race, I know they were testing it, which I think was a good idea. And, and like Mike said, maybe the coverage of it and uh, annotation of it during the race and how it did impact different things could have been a little bit better. The one thing I look at, just like when I went to Huntsville and, and got to see it in action for the first time, is the amount of cars out there. Uh, for the all-star race, there was only 20 cars. Some of them weren't uh, on the lead lap, so you're narrowing that down. The impact of it isn't as great. Once we have a full field of 40 cars, say we get a caution and there's 30-some cars on the lead lap, I think you're going to see it come into play more so. So I hope that in 2021 they do go to this. And it also depends on the track. I know at Bristol they did talk about that as far as what lane you wanted and the being in the traction compound or not. So we saw that come into play a little bit. And I think the other spot I know they focused on it was with, with Chase Elliott um, as well on the one restart with w- what he gained. So I think it did come into play as a fan and in knowing what it was all about. I guess I didn't need that explanation. So it is something they would have to look at going down the road of detailing a little more of the impact it truly has. But I hope that they do implement it in 2021 And I think when you have more cars that it's going to affect, you'll see more of an impact, especially throughout stages of a race when track position comes so much more important. Okay. For me, the the, uh, number on the car and the lights, in both of those cases, it turned out to be different than what I had envisioned. So the number on the car wasn't on the rear corner panel like I thought it was going to be. Like Mike said, it was kind of more uh, moved toward the quarter panel and freed up some of the door panel. Uh, so I didn't see it as a really big deal. I thought uh, I, I, I kind of fall in the same category with Mike, it, or I mean with uh, Jay, that it doesn't really matter to me where that number is as long as it works for the sponsor and the driver. Uh, and it, it can be visible. I don't know about upside down. If the nine was upside down, I might think it was a, a six. But uh, I would like them to be right side up, Jay. But, uh, fair, fair enough. I hadn't thought that through. <laughs> but but at any rate, uh, I didn't see an issue there at all. Uh, as far as the lights, I thought the lights were going to be underneath the entire car. The lights were only lit under the back part of the car. So, And I liked the idea that they had the Chevy, the Fords, and the um, uh, Toyotas all with different colors. I thought that was kind of a cool way to do it. Uh, I agree with Jay that to do it any other way could lead to quite a bit of confusion, not to mention the expense. So um, it's a nice thought, but I don't think it's a it's a logical uh, uh, logistic kind of thing for them to put into place. Uh, it could create more problems than anything. Um, as far as the choose cone, they did mention a few times some of the drivers that were gaining spaces, uh, gaining spots because they were choosing uh, a lane that it wasn't uh, chosen, so it helped some drivers kind of move up in the driver lineup. Uh, of the restart, so I thought that was kind of cool. I like the way they had it set up on the track for them to go either left or right, and they had the rule that they couldn't talk, touch the box of that cho- choose cone. So uh, I thought that was interesting, too, so you couldn't make a last-minute 
change of mind, you had to decide before you got up to to that spot on the racetrack which direction you were going to go. And I think most drivers didn't have a problem with that. Uh, They knew exactly what they wanted to do uh, when it came to making that choice. So I thought it was a good thing. And uh, I wouldn't mind seeing it again and seeing it play out in uh, under race points, uh, under a race points uh, event. So, Andy, I'm curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, with regards to the number, I, I think I fall in the category, you know, of most everyone else that, you know, the focus is really on the racing. And I found myself more focused on the racing, not where the car number was. Um, I will say that I've only ever known the the number to be in the center of the door, so it certainly looked weird to me and will probably take some getting used to. But, you know, at the end of the day, I I generally care more about the on-track product and and where my favorite driver finishes versus what the car actually looks like. So that's not a big deal. And, you know, if if it benefits sponsor placement, you know, moving forward by them changing things around a bit, then so be it. Um, with regards to the underglow, you know, while it is a neat idea, I, I found it to be more of a distraction, I think, than anything else and didn't really find it necessary. You know, was it cool and was it kind of neat for a non-points event like the All-Star Race? Sure, it was, but um, I, I don't really know that it's necessary moving forward as a full-time thing by any means. And then um, the choose cone uh, idea was awesome. I, I hope that we see it moving forward um you know one of the the nice attributes of of listening to in-car audio is is the teams talked about it a lot even though it wasn't Mm -hmm. on the broadcast there was a lot of uh strategy um and chatter on the radio about where to line up and it also depended on the preferred groove uh they talked about that a lot they talked about you know even to some degree who they would rather line up behind and you know and and spotters were even you know, if a car was back far enough, spotters were even saying who was choosing what lane ahead of them, you know, and relaying that information to the driver. So even though the broadcast apparently fell short in describing things, uh, there was a lot going on with that. So um, there's definitely an element of strategy when it comes to allowing a team to choose which lane they prefer to restart in. And I, I like that aspect of it a lot. And I think that it, um, as we've talked about before, it eliminated you know, some of the gamesmanship on pit road and the brake checking and put it in the hands of the team to make their own decision um, to where they wanted to line up. So I think it's a cool idea and certainly something that uh, I hope that we see implemented full-time moving forward. Okay, follow-up round. Mike. Um, I totally agree with you guys. The on-track product is the important part, but don't discount the necessity of good aesthetics with the cars. Uh, merchandise sales is a big part of not just the revenue stream of NASCAR, but also in terms of outreach and, and growing the popularity of the sport. Um, you can't take a piece of the on-track action home, but if a driver has a good-looking paint scheme on that car, it may drive those sales of die casts and T-shirts and other merchandise that not only helps uh, provide uh, some revenue for the teams in the sport, but it also gives the sponsors another return on their investment and therefore encourages sponsorship. So on-track product is certainly important, but there's a reason that the cars have paint jobs to begin with. They want those cars to be eye-catching in order for people to look at it, get excited, and, oh, by the way, look at the logo that some company is paying a lot of money to put out there. Jay? 
Yeah, I, I understand that. Like I said, for me, that's not the drive. And if you're in the marketing department, obviously, I'm sure they spent a lot of time in laying that out. So that's on them. As far as a fan, me personally, yeah, that's not one of the things that, that's going to drive me, uh, whether to purchase a merchandise or not. Color of a car, maybe. Um, you know, the sponsor, obviously, uh, does come into play. But as far as how it's laid out, I don't necessarily buy one because it's not designed that you're laid out the way I want. So it does have its place, but it's not on me. I mean, I know I'm a consumer and a fan, but it really didn't impact me one way or another. The, the one thing I, we're all kind of in agreement on the uh, choose cone. So I'm going to skip over that one for the second round. The one thing I will say with the glow lights, the underglow, Again, if it's not a night race, I don't see it having that big of an impact unless they possibly do find a way to have it under the entire car. But one place it could come into play, normally they do it with the spoiler and the car number for the playoff drivers, uh, whether it be in pink or highlighted in pink or green. I don't remember which. Um, that might be a spot where you could see it come into play because as they start the first or the 16 teams that make it into the playoffs, utilize it as teams drop out. But like I said, I don't think on a day race it's going to matter anyhow. So they still need that on the actual number or spoiler where it's more visible. Yeah, I think back to some of the uh, cars that I've bought and, you know, the die-cast cars that I've bought, and I didn't care where the number was. (laughs) I didn't care about the aesthetics of the car. I got the car because of my favorite driver. And, uh, you know, I got a Prilosec car. I got... I've got the singular car, you know, I've got the uh, 99XI car, um, and and those were cars that, that, that not necessarily uh, because they were appealing to me, but because of my favorite driver. So I don't think, I don't know that that really drives it for me. I can't speak for everybody else. Uh, as far as the lights, I agree. It doesn't make sense to do it during the day. I think it was great for the all-star race. Uh, beyond that, I, I can't really see them doing it. The only other thought that I thought of as you were talking, Jay, is maybe using it for the chase, for those chase drivers uh, for the night races, uh, not necessarily for the day races. But uh, I don't know how many night races there really are during the uh, playoffs, but that would be one other idea. And I'll skip the choose cone, too, because we all seem to be pretty much in agreement there. Andy, your your final thoughts? The only thing I can really follow up with regards to the way a car looks is, um, to your point, Sharon, yeah, I, I typically buy die casts of, of drivers that I follow. Um, but I will say that I, I tend to gravitate toward, you know, the really good-looking paint scheme. So to, to Mike's point, I see <laughs> where, you know, fans – you know, would be interested in a car that catches their eye. But, but at the same time, like I, you know, um, I tend to try to get the die cast of drivers I follow, but you know, if the car looks really good, I'll be extra excited about that particular car. So I can see where, you know, the look of a car does have some impact, but at the same time, um, like the other night, even though there was this, you know, for us, a drastic change to the cars for the all-star race, I, like I always have been, I, tended to focus on, you know, the racing product and really wasn't focused too much on, you know, number placement or anything. So um, I, I am curious to see, you know, if that's something they'll pursue moving forward. And, and if so, if there would be any tweaks to it, um, you know, I will give NASCAR credit for trying new things. And, um, 
you know, kind of coming up with some new ideas for, for potential future changes. So it's cool to try stuff out like they did the other night and, you know, hopefully some of it stays and, you know, maybe some other stuff they toy around with some more, but um, ultimately I'll, I'll give them credit for, for coming up with some new ideas. Okay. Okay. Moving on. Uh, Jay, what's on your list of hot topics? Well, I got several here still within the all-star race. I'll go with the, with the venue. Uh, I think we were all kind of in favor of it moving. I know obviously Chase Elliott was pre-race post-race quite so, uh, moving it to Bristol. The, and I know within the, the group messenger, the, the discussion was kind of the same. It's still the all-star event itself kind of came down to a little bit lackluster at the final. Um, so whether or not a couple of things, what you thought of the race overall, as well as then if they're going to move it, does it now move to Bristol permanently or do we still need to move it to a different venue every year? Okay. Andy, your thoughts. Uh, yeah. I, I don't want to say that I was disappointed necessarily because I thoroughly enjoyed the fact that the all-star race was held at Bristol, uh, a place that it probably should have been moved to a long time ago. However, I was a bit surprised by the lack of, beaten and banging and tempers that I, I really thought we would see. I didn't expect it to be a total demolition derby, but I definitely expected to see uh, more fender rubbing and, and more aggression trying to win a million dollars. It seemed to me that it got kind of strung out and it was really um, a quick race. I think that um, the open had uh, certainly more short track type racing, some more, you know, tempers and, some some incidents that kind of lent itself to, you know, a little bit more excitement. Um, you know, don't want to say that it was a bad race. It wasn't, you know, and we definitely saw some side-by-side racing and some passing. Um, I I just felt like that it was the perfect chance for, for these drivers to really show some true aggression, maybe more so than normal, and, and go out there to try to win some pretty big money. And it just you know, wound up being an uneventful quick race. So to that point, it was a little disappointing. Um, You know, do I think Bristol is a great place to hold it? I do because it's relatively close to the Charlotte market, um, close for the teams to get to. And uh, certainly I think a race like that belongs at a short track. But I I do think that it would be intriguing to see the all-star race go to different venues and, and different markets. And, you know, an idea that I think we've talked about before would be, you know, maybe run the all-star race at a, at a track that's not otherwise on the schedule, which, which would be kind of cool. So, um, you know, obviously there, there may be some changes with that down the road. It's hard to say, but, um, I guess, um, so I guess overall, you know, a little bit disappointed that there wasn't more, um, aggression and, and tempers flaring like you'd expect from a, a track like that. But at the same time, you know, decent race and, and, you know, certainly hope that they could, uh, hope that they could move that race around maybe some in the future. Okay. Mike. Yeah. Um, it's another year, you know, different track, same result where the undercard race, the open tends to outperform 
the main event in terms of performance. I think there may be a few factors in there. Uh, Kevin Harvick alluded to maybe there were some track preparation issues where they could have done some things differently. I'm not an expert to say what specifically they should have done, but Kevin kind of alluded that he may have uh, liked to have seen some different things done in order to prepare the track. Uh, I think the Open took place during the daylight, so it was a very different racetrack than uh, than what the All-Star race was, uh, was held on. Um, so maybe it was a little bit more of a, a wider groove for the Open. And you also have the, uh, the Open drivers tend to be a little more hungry. Uh, you've got guys who usually don't get the opportunity to be on the big stage week in and week out, at least not the majority of the guys in the open. So maybe they're a little bit hungrier. And maybe at this point in 2020, a million bucks isn't enough for guys who are already millionaires. Maybe they need to up the purse or something. I don't know. But I agree with Andy is they, it, 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 if there's a million dollars on the line, I'm going to go a lot harder for it than it seemed like a lot of the guys in the, uh, in the all-star race did. Um, there was a little bit of physicality in the all-star race, but really the, uh, the hard-nosed racing stuff we all saw in the open, and then the, uh, the all-star race itself unfortunately devolved into a, a one-groove track. Uh, if they do go to Bristol, I think it would benefit to have a little bit longer runs. Um, the 35-lap or even you know, the last segment of it was being only 15 laps Bristol really is at its best after a run develops over the course of 20 or 30 laps. So I know this is kind of counter to an argument that I've made a few months ago, but in this instance, I think the shorter segments in that all-star race at a track like Bristol took away a little bit from the potential that could have been had if they had allowed the runs to go a little bit longer, let the tires fall off a little bit, let the track come in a little bit more. Um, with only 20 cars on the track, you won't get the lap traffic issues that you'll get on a normal full field race, but having that development that you get over a longer run may have been able to contribute to a little bit better product than what we had last night. Okay. Uh, I'm going to do my spiel, and then I'll get into my uh, my commentary here. Uh, we are going to go off the air at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and uh, that does not mean that we stop recording. We do continue to record beyond that time, and we continue our conversation. So that becomes a part of our overtime bonus material on the podcast. If you're listening to the uh, live broadcast, all you have to do is I go out on uh, Twitter when we complete our show tonight and let people know that the podcast is available. Uh, shortly after that, uh, when the podcast becomes available, and you can just fast forward to the two-hour mark to hear the rest of that conversation. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, it's pretty seamless. Uh, you can probably listen straight through uh, without any issues. But we don't like for our live listeners to be taken by surprise when we go off the air at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, sometimes in mid-sentence. So uh, just to give everybody a heads up of what's going to take place what's going to take place here. Um, with regard to the actual racing, I agree with you guys. The Open was a little uh, more exciting uh, than what the, excuse me, I've got the hiccups here for some reason, uh, than what the actual All-Star race was. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think you might be right that the, the guys in the Open are a little bit hungrier. It's their chance to advance to be able to race in that all-star race. So they've got a little bit more on the line, I guess, um, to try to have that chance at the $1.1 million. Um, 
but it did seem like uh, the drivers are being a little careful with their cars, if you will, or maybe it's just that there was just the one groove uh, for them to race on. But uh, uh, part of it, a thought did occur to me uh, that part of it is that they're trying to take care of that equipment. Usually, uh, in years past, the the all-star race um, would take place um, and and they'd have a special all-star car. But in these times with COVID-19 and with money being a little bit tighter, I'm not sure if that they might be saving their car for another race down the road. I'm not sure. But just a thought that went through my mind that that might be playing into all of that as well. As far as the all-star race being at a, a different venue, Every year, I'm all in favor of that. I really like that it was at Bristol Motor Speedway this year. I thought it did add an element of excitement. Uh, I know the drivers were happy to see more fans in the stands uh, in in this kind of unique year that we're in the midst of. And, uh, you know, I, I would like to see them move it around uh, to different tracks throughout the season. And, it, it, you know, it doesn't have to be all on the East Coast. I know part of the whole idea of having the all-star race at Charlotte Motor Speedway is to have that exhibition race in front of the hometown crowd uh, with family and friends and attendants. So I know that that's part of the original concept there, but I think that there would be some uh, a nice advantage to get people from around the country involved in that all-star exhibition race and have a chance to be able to witness that. So uh, I'm in favor of moving it around. So, Jay, what are your thoughts? Well, I think they kind of got mentioned uh, first off with the racing itself. And I believe when we talked about this going into the event, somebody mentioned that maybe that that 15 laps was just a little bit too short of a segment. I, I don't remember if one of us said that or not, but I looked at it as you were coming down in those in those 15 laps. Any kind of pit strategy had to have time to play out. Uh, if you stayed out on tires, like Mike mentioned, the, the give up of the tires. Kyle Busch was closing in on Chase Elliott. Harvick had go, gone back and pitted for tires and was only able to work his way back up to third. And he said part of that was getting through traffic. But So even five, maybe ten more laps would have allowed all that to play out. And I think we would have had a three-car battle and then maybe would have had that exciting finish that we were kind of looking for. Uh, I, I know it got mentioned, you don't necessarily want to see a demo derby, but you do want to see some action. Again, it is a million dollars on the line. We want to see somebody wrecking their grandma to get that million dollars as they all say they would. So, uh, Sharon, you might have hit on something there with the year the way it is. Uh, having to save the car, not having one car designed specifically for the all-star event. And that very well could be. Um, Like I said, I just think that in those closing laps, had it gone another five laps or 10, I think we'd have seen a a possibly a different outcome. As I say, Harvick was closing in, Kyle Busch had closed up, but then uh, wasn't able to finish it quite yet. Uh, So I think another couple of laps would have done that good. When I look at moving it, I would like to see it go to different venue, a different venue every year. I know they like to do it under the lights. So there you run into the, the issue of which tracks have lights off the top of my head. And if you're trying to keep it close to Charlotte, 
I know you got Martinsville, which now has lights, and Darlington, which has lights. But there's a couple others, like Andy said, of maybe putting it on a track that doesn't host event, uh, especially for the Cup Series. You're not talking about 40 cars. You're talking about 20 at a time. So a track like Gateway or Iowa. Uh, now, whether or not they can do, do that, uh, again, logistically, have to wait and see. But those are a couple that I'd like to see it at anyway. And lastly, as far as what was the other part to that? Oh, there again, over the past, I'd say about four years um, with the with the way the open is set up and this eligibility to race your way in, especially in segments, once they started the, the segments to it of three advancing from, as well as the all-star, that the open has been for the, the obviously reasons. Uh, you're not in it yet. You have to get in. And we saw some good drivers who have been running really well this year. Uh, Eric Almarola is a past winner, hadn't raced or hadn't gotten in yet this year without a, with a win, not having a win. Matt Benedetto, William Byron, two drivers I fully expected to be contenders. Ricky Stenhouse, especially at Bristol. Uh, I don't know if he quite had his Bristol setup or not. Um, and I think maybe then if he'd have made it in, we'd have seen some of the action we'd like to see. I don't know. <laughs> but you definitely do see that in the open over the actual all- all-star race. And, and like Mike said, I'm not the one volunteering to put up the money, but, uh, you know, to the top guys, that million dollars isn't, isn't what it used to be either. So, uh, again, by no means before Andy or Mike jump in there, I'm not putting up any extra money and do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go back to uh, Andy. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on – you know, saving the car, you know, this is the first year where they do have a chassis limit, um, you know, with their, with their inventory. So even, even the most well-funded teams, I think have to kind of try to manage their stuff as much as they can. So um, not a, not a scenario where they can just go out there and junk a car on purpose for no reason. So um, you may have seen some of, some of, you know, taking care of the equipment, but um you know, ultimately, I guess to to kind of cap things off with the All Star race, um, I, I did feel like it was a refreshing change. I thought it was a good change overall in terms of everything that was done for this race, and um, you know, certainly would like to see see um, you know the All Star race either at Bristol again or perhaps another short track. I I don't think that. Unfortunately, I, I think the uh, the course has been run for a mile and a half. So, you know, we've done it at Charlotte a, a long time, and I, I think it's time to you know to change things up and, and maybe run it on you know various short tracks in the coming years. I think that can lend itself to some of the better on track action. Okay, Mike. My only counterpoint to the uh, the preserving equipment thing is the guys who actually raced like race cars grow on trees in Dale Jr.'s backyard were the guys who tended to be from the lower-funded teams racing in the open. Those guys raced all out, and they beat their cars up pretty good versus the teams that have a lot more, a lot more financial resources tended to be the ones that seem to be conserving equipment. So I don't know, just my observation on that piece, and I really don't have a whole lot more to add beyond that. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Again, I think those guys are have a lot more on the line. They want to be in that all-star race. It's a big deal to be in the all-star race, especially for the sponsors uh, that are behind them. And so I think they've got a lot more on the line in the open to get into the all-star race. So I think that's, that's why it's like that. Um, 
other than that, I don't have a whole lot to add either. Uh, Jay. Well, I guess I guess I can only think of one. I was going to say, if, again, we have to keep it under the lights. The only road course that would be under the lights would be the Daytona road course. So maybe in the Jay Hoosman Cup, the all-star race will be on a road course under the lights. Or Charlotte, the, the room uh, with the underglow. The underglow? There you go, with it, with the underglow and uh, some <laughs> other things. We'll come up with some things for for the the Jay Hoosman All Star Cup. Well, Jay, you could <laughs> run the Roval at night at Charlotte. You could do that. No, I thought we were going away from Charlotte. <laughs> well, the only way I'd go back there is if it was run on the Roval. That I think would be somewhat interesting. What about the Legends definitely track would the front be. stretch? Definitely would be. Uh, that's true. The Legends track, too. You could do, like, uh, half the race on the Legends track and half the road course. That'd be something. <laughs> yeah, that would be something. Okay. Uh, let's see. Mike, I think that puts you up for the uh, next hot topic. Yeah, this is um... – I came across a tweet earlier today, and I was trying to find it to make sure I get the uh, attribution correct, and I can't find it. I think it was Freddie Kraft, but I'm not entirely positive on it. But he kind of brought up the point uh, back in the paint scheme discussion of maybe moving back towards a little bit more uniformity with each individual car and their paint job. And by that, I mean, you think back 20 years ago, and I understand it was a different era in terms of sponsorship, but you think back to Jeff Gordon or Dale Earnhardt or Rusty Wallace or Ricky Rudd, and one car pops into mind, you know, one paint job with slight variances here and there, but one paint job really comes to mind versus now almost every single car has half a dozen different paint jobs throughout the year and it makes it a little bit more challenging. Uh, this is from a spotter. So from a, a spotter standpoint, week to week, maybe seeing your car on the track, but also from a fan standpoint, you don't have as strong an identification with that. So his point was, obviously, you're not going to be able you know, the, the, the era of full season sponsorship is more or less over. However, maybe do kind of like what Team Penske does, where they have kind of a coherent design language that they have in their paint jobs on a lot of them um, that then gets adapted to the various sponsors that they have. So kind of come to a meeting of the minds between the sponsorship, the team design, and build that team uh, car and driver identity a little bit more because I think that may have been lost a little bit over the past few years. Okay, Jay. I don't. I don't know if that's possible. As you mentioned, it's a matter of, and it goes back to, and I, I don't remember uh, if it was Kraft or not. I did see some of the some of the thread on that. You know, it started with Dale Earnhardt. He had the, the black, good wrench paint scheme. I don't even know if he had any other paint scheme uh, throughout those years. But coming to the the All Star race with the silver car and then the Wheaties car kind of kicked that off, and that became the thing of the All Star was a special paint scheme. But like you said, financially now you don't have that with the exception of maybe uh, FedEx. I know it was one of the longer runnings um, for the entire year. But even that, they have the different colored throughout the season with the FedEx ground, freight, and whatever else they got. So you see a little bit different variation in that. Um, I know Penske does kind of within the, the team, like you said, of, of try and keep it standard, if you will, but that's one of those of, you know, different sponsors, just like with where the car number fits and with their logo, 
you know, you'd have a tough time trying to work with four or five different sponsors. If they want their, like you said, they want a unique look. They want to have that eye catching thing that sets them apart. So they're probably not going to want to have the same scheme as the other car. Cause then they're going to be like, well, then how do you know it's our sponsor, not the other sponsor. So they want to have it different so that it stands out. So it'd be really tough to go back to that unless we get to where it is one sponsor for the whole year. Okay, Andy? Yeah, I can't offer a whole lot extra than what Jay said. That's a, that's almost exactly the same way that I feel about it, too. I, I, I do miss the iconic paint schemes that tended to define an entire season and, and in some cases, you know, define – you know, large portions of one's career, obviously Jeff Gordon and DuPont, Dale Earnhardt with GM Goodwrench, you know, Tony Stewart with the Home Depot car, you know, those were definitive times for, for large portions of their careers. And, and obviously um, we remember those paint schemes, but that certainly has to do with the fact that they had longtime sponsors that tended to sponsor, you know, most of, if not entire seasons. And it would be cool to see, uh, more companies come on board for either more races or entire seasons because that would mean more involvement um, and more sponsorship for teams. So certainly that would be good. But, you know, we're just, you know, in a day and age where we see so many companies sponsor the car. And I think that exactly like Jay said, um, you know, whoever sponsors the car for a given week, they get to kind of say, I think, to, to quite a bit of it, you know, they get to say, quite a bit you know what the car looks like certainly and obviously they're going to want their colors and their logos on the car and um you know i think that if you if you had a generic paint scheme you know for five or six different companies it would certainly dilute the uh the ability to showcase the product for a particular sponsor so uh i get what mike was saying about that and, and that does make sense you know because you could bring back identity for the team but unfortunately i think that uh primary sponsors are you know going to want a car to look a certain way so um you know so I, I we're just we're just in a different era now i guess where you know we see varying paint jobs and in some cases you know we even see you know numbers change font you know, based on a on a sponsor on the car now too. So, um, I think it's just a product of the the day and the age that we're in now. Yeah, if I'm following, the only thing I'm going to add because I agree with Jay and Andy on this, uh, I I follow the car number. I'm looking for the car number, not necessarily the sponsor. And I I, I understand what you're saying that you know Ally stands out, and you you can see that. Um, but as a fan, I think most fans are looking for their car number on the track, and uh, they would rather uh, see the different sponsors and the different car schemes because, again, going back to the marketing thing that you talked about later or earlier is, you know, the, the more different car schemes that you have, the more different marketing opportunities there are. And most sponsors want their want their uh, logo and, and uh, that identification to be clearly marked on that car. I agree. We're beyond that age of having one sponsor for the year, and I don't see the coordination going into uh, coordinating a – similar car scheme uh, for different sponsors. It's it's just not going to happen. So, Mike, I'm curious to know your thoughts. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously this is just a little bit of nostalgic, uh, you know, whimsical, whatever. Uh, I will say, though, um, if, you, if you say you follow the car number on track, you need to go to Talladega. Uh, sitting in the grandstands in Talladega, you're hard-pressed to tell the different shades of blue cars from each other, much less you can't see a number when they're on the backstretch. Um, so it is what it is. And like I said, I, I completely understand in, in today's era of fractured sponsorship where you're only going to have – a sponsor who may support the team for five, half a dozen, ten races or something throughout the year, and then you have this patchwork network of sponsors just to get through a season. I totally understand it's not really realistic, but it's just kind of, you know, it, it would be something that would be nice to have, but I completely understand that it's probably a bygone era at this point. Okay. Jay, do you have any follow-up there? No, I really, I really don't. Okay, Andy? Uh, no, I think I'm good on that one. Okay, Mike. <laughs> I think nope, we're, that's all we're I got probably on that topic. Good. Okay. Yeah, we've, we've uh, circled around twice now, I think. Yep, okay, Andy, what's your next topic? Um, honestly, I was going to see what Jay had in mind. It sounded like he had a few, and, and for me, the big one was really just the all-star stuff we already talked about, so... Uh, what you got, Jay? All right. This one could get a little touchy here. Rookie of the year. Props to Cole Custer for winning a race. If he's the only rookie to make it into the playoffs now, the others are right on that cut line, that automatically locks him into rookie of the year. Even if that's the only race he wins, does should that define who the be, uh, who the top rookie of the year is, I guess? Does okay. That, does that Andy? make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, to be honest, I don't quite know how this works in terms of rookie points, but are, aren't rookie points separate from overall points? Not, in, so, not anymore. Not anymore. Well, oh, once really? you make okay. the playoffs, you automatically get a points bump, which would automatically move up that rookie. Okay. See, that's something I didn't know. Um Oh boy, that yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, I think probably three or four weeks ago, I would have said that the the clear candidate for rookie of the year was Tyler Reddick based on his overall performance this year. Uh, but honestly, Cole Custer has has figured something out. Uh, I realized his performance last night wasn't you know anything to write home about, but. Um, you know, his team, I think, is starting to figure some stuff out. Obviously, had a top-five finish at Indianapolis that I think turned some heads. And then, obviously, we all know how um, how strong he was at Kentucky and, and obviously, you know, flat-out earned his first career win. That wasn't, that wasn't you know, a cheapened win by any means. And we've certainly seen those in the past, and I won't get into that. But, uh, you know, he, he went out there and earned that win, and I think that in itself impressed a lot of people. So, um he's making a strong case right now for why he should be the rookie of the year in itself. So um, to answer your question though, should, should making the playoffs automatically make him the rookie of the year? No, I don't think so. I think it, I think the rookie points should probably be separate so that they can reward overall rookie performance. Um, But certainly Custer is making a case for why he should be uh, in contention for the rookie of the year. No doubt. Okay, Mike. 
Yeah, I'm trying to figure out. I, I was with Andy. I thought there was a separate point system with the way the rookie uh, of the year was awarded. Uh, if that's recently changed, that's news to me. Um, and I, I agree that if it is the point you know, where a, one guy wins a race and locks himself into the playoffs and nobody else makes it into the playoffs, that shouldn't clinch them to be the rookie of the year. Let's go, you know, take it to a little bit more of an extreme. Cole Custer doesn't win the race, but, you know, a few weeks from now, Quinn Huff uh, wins a rain-shortened race, and none of the other rookies make the playoffs for whatever reason. Should Quinn Huff be considered the rookie of the year? Not to take anything away from him, but the overall level of performance of that team, by virtue of their financial position and whatever other factors are in there, it makes it a really difficult argument to make that just because that one team was fortunate enough to win a race – they shouldn't win an overall season-long award like that just based on that one race win. And I think the same logic can be applied to Colt Custer. It's great that he won a race, and you know, it's, it's wonderful for the team, him as a driver, and uh, the development of his career. But if the circumstances play out to the point where he's the only rookie who makes the playoffs, I don't think that's right or fair that it eliminates guys like Tyler Reddick, who have also been having an outstanding season, and maybe just the, the chips don't fall his way and he doesn't end up in victory lane to make the playoffs. I don't think he should be eliminated from the Rookie of the Year competition with the beginning of the playoffs in September. Okay. Um, I, uh, I, the other thing you've got to take into consideration with that scenario is that is Quinn Huff in the top 30 in series point standings, because even if he gets a win, if he's not in the top 30 in the series point standings, he's not going to be in the playoffs. So there's a lot that goes into those factors, and I think that's an extreme example. Um, I do think that maybe you have a regular, like you have a regular season champion and you have a regular, uh, you know, the overall champion after the 10-race playoffs. Uh, maybe you look at it from that perspective. Uh, Tyler Reddick may be hot in the early part of the season, but like we've talked about, even with the other guys, the veteran drivers, sometimes you can be hot in the early part of the season and then things cool off and you end up not winning that championship at the end of the year because you're, you're just not, you're, you're not performing like you were at the beginning. So, um, you know, we've had regular season champions. Grant Infinger is a good example, and it was a shame to see it happen to him. He had a great season. He won the regular season championship but ran into trouble in the early part of the playoffs and ended up not being able to contend for the championship. Um, so I, I, I understand that they give them that bump. Tyler Ankrum is another good example. Tyler May was the only truck series driver that made the playoffs last year in that truck series he became the rookie of the year as a result of that because when they're in the playoffs they get that bump in points uh and that gives them that uh opportunity to to uh, win that that uh recognition as uh the uh as the rookie of the year i i I think that uh, this could be an example, this year could be an example of somebody being good again at the beginning part of the season but not able to carry it out for the full year. Uh, And where Cole Custer was slow at the beginning part of the year, 
he's picking up speed now at a good time, and he may be able to carry it into the playoffs. So, you know, I don't see any problem with him getting, especially if he's the only rookie to get into the playoffs, then I think he should be recognized as the rookie of the year. Um, If there's two rookies, they're both going to get the bump, and then it becomes a competition again. So I don't know. I'm curious to know your thoughts, Jay. Well, and I have a tough time with it, and and you brought it up. The the, the example that I had in my mind was in the truck series with Tyler Ankrum, and Mm-hmm. I think he did prove himself to that even in the playoffs. He didn't advance in the playoffs, but that he deserved to be where he was at. What I'm looking at is right now, if 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 you were to cut it off right now, Tyler Reddick is at, and I just pulled it up, uh, 371 points. Cole Custer's at 321. So if they were to say right now as it is, Tyler Reddick would be rookie of the year because he's got the more points, but they, even though they Custer that. has that win. <laughs> Uh, right. No, I understand that. So I'm saying if you're comparing it that way, you can't compare it by just one win. And in this case, I have no means saying he lucked into that win like Mike was using an example. And, yeah, uh, Huff isn't 30 in, in points, but the basis of his example is one that isn't running up front weekly but happens to get a win somehow or another and we're in 30, uh, 30th in points and go into the playoffs. Does that establish them as better than the rest of them? when throughout the year they haven't been. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said, said you look at it right now, Tyler Reddick is leading the rookie of the year, and what they do is they do go strictly based on the driver's standing points. And that's why, as Sharon point, pointed out, once you go to the playoffs, the, the playoff drivers that are advancing get that bump of, of 1,000 points uh, up to 2,000 over everybody else. So that elevates anybody that's eligible, which would include right now Cole Custer as the only rookie to have that win. But does that really define it as far as that? Because right now Custer has that win, but is still 50 points behind him in, the, in that. So I, I, I really do think they need to maybe look at going back to them, the rookie of the year battle being a separate points. I know that was a little confusing to fans, and I think that's why NASCAR made that change was to try and make it simpler for the fans that were following that. And when they talk about, well, they're here in points, but they're here in the rookie standings and it being two-point systems. But I think this is maybe an example of, and not to say Cole Custer can't come on and outshine Tyler Reddick in these last races. Uh, He certainly deserved that win. Like I said, he didn't luck into it. It wasn't rain-shortened or tire strategy or anything he drove uh, drove up there and took that win I, I would not take that away from him but overall on the year who has had the better year and right now based on points the way it is it is Tyler Reddick well okay I'll go to uh I'll go to Andy next <laughs> yeah I was just reading on on uh on JC's about it and it basically just says that the point system mirrors you know, that of, of the driver or owner standings. What I don't know and it doesn't say is if, you know, come playoff time, if one rookie driver gets into the playoffs, that they would give them that points bump for the rookie It, uh, it does, because that, that as, Sharon, as Sharon pointed out last year with Tyler Ankrum, he, he guaranteed himself rookie of the year because he was the only rookie to make it into the playoffs. Oh, okay. And nobody else could touch it, could catch him because of the points bump. 
I understand. Yeah, that's uh, man. I don't know. I I think that I don't I don't disagree with the way that they structure it. You know, in terms of earning points, I think that's totally fine. But I guess if if I were you know to make a tweak myself, I would just you know keep the total points accumulation going into the playoffs, but not give them the points bump because you know. You know, if things don't change, you know, at all between now and the playoffs, Cole Custer gets rookie of the year no matter what happens. And, you know, do I do I think that he's making a strong case to be rookie of the year? Absolutely. You know, but there there may be an example of, you know, where Tyler Reddick may have actually earned more points. Um, it, it's, it's just hard to say. Um, you know, I guess um, – when you take over the cup series, Jay, we can, we can make some changes, you know, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's certainly something that, you know, you, you, I, I would prefer to see tweaks for sure. Mike. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, kind of like what everyone's saying. It exposes maybe a bit of a flaw in the way the point system is set um, in that you can have one rookie run away and really it takes 10 races away from the other rookies for the opportunity to potentially close a gap and win that Rookie of the Year award. It effectively shortens the Rookie of the Year contest to 26 races versus 36. And you think about how many different changes have happened throughout the sport over the course of those last 10 races, uh, whether it's Tony Stewart coming back and winning the championship, or even last year, Kyle Busch went from, I think, June all the way until Miami and didn't win a single race and had a a couple pretty crummy runs. And then he gets into the playoffs, does okay enough to advance largely on the strength of his playoff points, And Kyle Busch is the 2019 series champion because of the things he accomplished in those last 10 race playoffs, particularly by winning at Homestead. So taking those last 10 races away is an opportunity to improve your position towards the end of the season. It seems like it's a bit of a flaw in the way that they would award rookie of the year. Okay. Well, I hear what you guys are saying. If if you've got, uh, do you want to have a rookie of the year who doesn't have any wins uh, being the rookie of the year when you've got somebody who has won uh, and they're not rookie of the year. Uh, I would rather have a rookie of the year who's got wins under his belt uh, because it is very unique for a rookie uh, to be able to get a win, especially in the Cup Series. So I think they should be recognized for getting that win um, because it is not something that happens every day. Uh, or every year for that matter, and this is probably one of the better rookie classes we've had in a good long while. Um, so we we probably wouldn't even be having this discussion any other rookie year because most of the rookie candidates wouldn't even be able to get a win. Um, so I think Cole Custer should be recognized uh, for accomplishing something that most rookies don't accomplish and uh, that would be with a Rookie of the Year honor. Uh, I understand that Reddick has is, is been doing well, but he does not have any wins. He hasn't set himself apart by winning and standing out in that respect. So, uh, you know, I advocate that uh, it, the, the system, the way it stands, is, is uh, recognizing uh, somebody who's going above and beyond and accomplishing something uh, above and beyond, uh, and in this particular case, 
Uh, I think he would deserve that if he's the only rookie that was able to pull off a win uh, this season. Now, if another rookie pulls off a win and gets into the playoffs, then you watch that competition in the playoffs between those two rookies because, again, it's so rare that a rookie would win in the Cup Series. That would be phenomenal. So that's just my so thought the natural follow-up. Well, let me ask you this. Since you said uh, mention mention that, and yes, I'm using some extreme numbers here, but there's 36 races, so a rookie has one win and 35 DNFs versus a one that has 36 <laughs> top tens. Obviously, there's well, a difference again, there. Yeah, the likelihood di- of that happening is right, and that's what I said. I, I'm I'm taking it taking it to an extreme, but you see my point of that one win doesn't necessarily put them above the other. Okay. Mike, you had something else you wanted to say? Yeah. I mean, not even going to extreme numbers, just take this year's current rookie class, for example. Cole Custer obviously has one win, barring something completely unforeseen. He's going to make the playoffs. Um, say, for example, he's the only driver who gets that win before the playoffs start, but then when we get to the playoffs, Tyler Reddick wins two races or Christopher Bell wins two races. Well, they Mm -hmm. still are not going to be in the playoffs. So by virtue of having an earlier win, even though he would only have one, does Cole Custer still beat out the rookies who then went on and maybe did a little bit, you know, had a little bit slower start, but ended up winning two races at the end of the year. Given the way that the 8 and the 95 have been performing, I don't think two races are out of the realm of possibility for either one of those teams. Well, and and they can also pick up stage points along the way. Uh, so there's a lot of ways that they can pick up points. It is a big bump for the uh, playoffs, and I go back to my original premise, which was that uh, maybe you have a regular season rookie and a and a uh, you know, a rookie for the playoffs, if there is a rookie in the playoffs. So I don't know. But I do think the way it stands right now, I think Cole Custer should be recognized for accomplishing something that most rookies don't accomplish, and that is that he's won a race in his rookie season, and he didn't win it in a rain-sorting fashion. He won it straight out against the veterans of the sport. Okay, let's go ahead and move on. Um, Jay, did you have any others? Uh, No, I think we're we're up on the the top top. of the hour anyway, so. Yeah, Yeah, we're already at the top. I just noticed that. All right, we're at the top of the hour, which means that uh, it's time for us to do our roundtable. Mike, we'll start with you. Yeah, Mike Orzel on Facebook, Mike underscore Orzel on Twitter. Got a couple articles in the queue, so keep your eye on Fan for Racing blog for uh, for some more content coming out. Um, maybe, hopefully, get to the uh, the Talladega Fall Race. It looks like there may end up being fans there. We'll see, but it's still a ways out. So uh, that's about all I got going on right now. Okay, uh, Jay. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook at Michael Hoosman, MoparMJ8 on Twitter and Instagram. And I haven't talked to uh, to Sharon yet, but I got an idea for an article. I want to run by her and see what she thinks. Uh, so here in a week or so, I'll have one coming out for myself as well, hopefully. 
All right, sounds good. Andy. Hey, Lasky14 on uh, Twitter, and at this point, not 100% sure how much I'll be able to watch the racing this weekend, but I'll try to get and uh, see what I can. So hopefully uh, everyone enjoys Texas this weekend, and uh, looking forward to participating as much as I can. All right. Uh, I am Fan for Racing site on Twitter, Fan for Racing blog and radio, elsewhere on social media, including our Fan for Racing website at fanforracing.com. Uh, and uh, we've got a lot to look forward to. I think I'll be more involved in uh, the race chats this weekend. I've had a couple of really, really busy weekends, uh, but I'm looking forward to the racing this weekend at Texas and uh, perhaps getting a chance to chat with everybody uh, in our race chat room. (laughs) So uh, we will look forward to that this weekend. A big shout-out to our listeners for tuning in. We appreciate everybody uh, for listening to what it is we have to say and also uh, to our Fan for Racing crew for all that you do. Uh, You guys are great, and I, I appreciate all of you. So. Uh, I think we are ready to call it a wrap. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night, everybody. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.